Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and with me as always is... Catherine! And this is your podcast for discussions on whether or not a film is a failure piece or just a piece of something else. And this week on The Chopping Block is another, we'll just go ahead and say it, fucked up family film Mm. of the 1980s. And that is Return to Oz, the Walter Murch directed, Disney produced sequel, quote unquote, to the seminal classic, The Wizard of Oz, MGM's iconic 1939 Technicolor release. Uh, But Return to Oz is not that movie and doesn't want to be. And boy, according to the internet, that made people very very angry but full disclosure together full disclosure i have forced you to watch this film with me no fewer than four thousand times um yes this was was pretty much on repeat for a couple of years there i wanted to be feruza balk i wanted to live in this movie and as horrific as it is i i really did Yep, this is not an easy watch for a young one. Uh, there are some truly, truly terrifying moments in this. As there are in the original Wizard of Oz. Um, you know, the original Wizard of Oz, the flying monkeys, the Wicked Witch of the West, and, and all of her antics, you know, they are legitimately scary even today um, in some cases. But this is just on a whole nother level. So uh, I guess we can go ahead and just jump right into it. I did want to have a a quick moment to talk about sort of what we've been watching, mostly so that I could share with you a show that I just finished. Um, And that is Ted Lasso. I saw you tweet about that. I was wondering if you'd talk about it. I did. Um, Man. Oh, man. Uh, I had seen people rumbling about it for about a month, month and a half. Like, oh, man, you need Ted Lasso in your life, all this stuff. And I had a vague recollection. Uh, I like Jason Sudeikis a lot. Uh, I always have, even though he was always kind of a second, he's always kind of a second tier SNL cast member. I always enjoyed the stuff that he did on the show. Um, and then his his post SNL career has always been fun. Like they're they're not great movies, you know. We're the Millers, that kind of stuff. It's not a fantastic film, but it's got really good moments. Uh, so I've always liked him. Uh, really liked him on uh, Last Man on Earth, which uh, my wife and I both just adored that show. And, uh, you know, so I always kind of keep an eye on stuff that he does. And so I'd seen this come out and I had a vague recollection of the promotional commercials that he had done for when NBC started airing games from the Premier League in England. Right. Because he had played this character in those commercials. And the character very simply is an American football coach who was hired to go coach a soccer team for the Premier League in England and has no idea what he's doing. Uh, That's the premise. That's the joke. There's nothing else, right? At least in the original promos. And this show takes that character, that sort of core idea, fleshes it out tremendously, and then, you know, executes. Um, And it is, hands down, one of the best things I have watched in a long time. Awesome. It's uh, it's worth noting that it was it's co-produced by uh, Bill Lawrence, who oh, did Scrubs. Scrubs, 
Mm-hmm. Among other things, he's had a cougar town story career. <laughs> but Scrubs is is very close to my heart. I, I love Scrubs. Uh, the later seasons obviously sort of went off the rails and kind of did their own thing as the show got shuffled around networks and people came and went. But the first, I, I would say, four seasons, uh, maybe the fifth season if you want to include some some major chunks of it. The first four seasons of Scrubs are near near perfect. Yeah. Right. There's not really a bad episode in there. Uh, maybe a couple if you want to, you know, really get tough. But it, it's a show that had an incredible balance between heart, like legitimate heart and warmth and sincerity human drama you know actual stakes in things that are going on and legitimate incredible joke per minute numbers right like they, and it can balance all of those things incredibly well and ted lasso does basically the same thing nice. right it's incredibly heartfelt a lot of it has to do with the character of lasso himself in the original nbc promos he was sarcastic and you know, it's kind of a know-it-all, exactly what you would expect to sort of sell the joke. In this one, they they build on the idea that Ted Lasso is basically an irrepressible optimist. He believes in people. He believes in himself. He believes in the power of being a good coach and changing people's lives in, in that role. And that is his sort of core driving force. And he can't really be shaken from it. And it's not played as a show, right? Like he's like some like he's doing it and pretending and then, you know, behind the scenes he's actually, you know, the the Mr. Rogers idea. Like basically yeah. he is the Mr. Rogers of soccer. That's what they do with him. He's just sincere and and believable and kind and and no one can bring him down. Of course, things happen over the course of the season that that push against that. Of course, they have to. But man, Sudeikis just kills it. The supporting cast, Brendan Hunt, who's the co-producer and co-writer, and he was in the original promos too, as kind of his assistant coach in this in the show. They've just cut, they call him Coach Beard because he has a beard. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, he's also fantastic. <laughs> One of my favorite jokes. Beard is uh, is super super reserved. Like speaks very monotone. He's, he very rarely expresses himself. You know, so he's offsets lassos like bombastic. You know, let's do it. We're you know believe team. You know that kind of stuff. But there is a joke. And it comes about halfway through the season, I think, where they're just standing on the soccer field and they're they're riffing back and forth about something that they had happened earlier in the episode. And he goes like, Beard says, "Who was president in the '80s?" And Lasso looks at him and goes like. Ronald Reagan, and apropos of nothing, out of nowhere, he goes, Ronald Reagan, <laughs> the actor, <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he does this dead-on Christopher Lloyd impression. <laughs> it just comes out of nowhere, wild eyes and everything, and and you can see Sudeikis just loses it. Like he must have known it was coming, but it's just it's such a great moment, and it. Uh, it's that kind of stuff and all over the place in the show that makes it so great. Um, but yeah, no, 100% recommendation. It has made me, uh, I watched it by other means, I'll say, but uh, I, I'm seriously considering signing up for Apple TV so that I can watch it nice. uh, over and over again in, in 4K and, and enjoy it. <laughs> so high, highly recommended. It's, it's great. And it's really fast. It's half hour episodes. Um, you know, there's only 10, so I mean, it's it's really quick to get through. 
but it was it was great. I loved it. Uh, hope, me and Heather both, or my, me and my wife both, we just adored it. So, um, uh, I anyways, that's that's really all I've seen. I so. have been watching Disney content mostly because a friend gifted me. Do they have a lot? They have they have quite a bit. They have quite a bit. It's surprising, really. Um, they ought to think about setting up some kind of like streaming service. <laughs> enjoy their content. Uh, a friend gifted me with a year of Disney Plus which I appreciate nice. so much. Um, and it allowed me to watch the, the movie that we're, we're doing for this episode. And it also allowed me to watch some of the Star Wars movies that I have missed. Because um, mm-hmm. I didn't, like, I, I saw Rogue One, but I didn't see it in theaters. I, I saw the, the main trilogy. The main line. You know, because yeah. I feel like I'm obligated trilogy. to see those. Uh, but I didn't see the solo movie. Um, you know, I like Ron Howard, but I thought, well, you know, I, I just don't feel like it's going to be the spectacle of you know the the main films. No, so I skipped it. Mm. Um, but I watched that, and I my I was kind of lukewarm on it. I I had hoped that Ron Howard would have made a bit more of his own stamp on it once the project was given to him. But we talked a little bit about the production, and it was really troubled. Um, I liked the cast except for Amelia Clark. Sorry. Um, uh, no, I'm I'm on the anti Amelia Clark train. I I can't stand her. Sorry, like Amelia her Clark fate. fans. I'm uh, yeah, sorry. I, mean, it's fine. <laughs> I I hope you continue getting work. I will not consume it more than likely. But um, good on you. So she was the weakest part of the film for me because I just don't. I just didn't like her character. I didn't like anything that happened. Um. I also just don't understand why they keep doing things with Chewbacca. And I know they had to do the the Wookiee life debt. I guess I was hoping for more relationship building with Chewbacca if they were going to put him in the movie at all. But instead, it mm. just felt like an afterthought. And that made me sad. Um, uh, yeah. Because, of course, I, mean, I want to see a giant dog in the movie. Like, that's all I want. I just <laughs> want to see Wookiees everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I, I, really, uh, I really enjoyed... I'll go ahead and say it. I think Solo is my favorite of the the new Disney era Star Wars films. Um, not because I think it's great. It is not. It is incredibly troubled, and the the script is far too interested in answering questions that no one had. Um, for example, I did not need to know that Han Solo's last name came from an Imperial registration agent yeah. saying. Oh, you're alone. Yeah. Solo. There were so many wink, wink, nudge, uh, nudge moments terrible. that yeah, bothered me. That, all that stuff was deeply awful. But I, the most of the Chewy stuff worked for me. But Chewy, I, I, I think I've mentioned on here before. At, at this point, I realize now that Chewbacca is my favorite Star Wars character. Like he's, he's all I care about when I watch Star Wars movies most of the time. It's not Luke Skywalker. It's not Han Solo. I just love Chewbacca. Always will. Yeah. And so I was glad to have more of him, and I was really glad to see that Jonas Swantomo was given the chance to actually act as Chewbacca, which he hadn't really gotten the chance to up until that point in the sequel trilogy. Because um, they were, you know, obviously within Force Awakens, it was very much wherever it could be, it was the, uh, it was the original Chewbacca, and then he was sort of learning from him. And uh, then, of course, his health began to fail, and so he took over a more active role. But it was just really good to see him actually sort of... I think that's the first project where he really got to own 
the part. And I, uh, I liked I the Chewbacca performance. Um, I guess I just, if it were up to me, I would have eliminated the love story entirely because like quite frankly that just doesn't interest me because in my mind han solo's heart belongs to princess leia and i don't care about any of the other women he's ever been with um i only want to see him with princess leia and that's it so i struggled with that i struggled like giving a crap and i feel like it sidelined the the friendship with chewbacca a little bit and i was really hoping to see more of that i don't know yeah, uh again, I think the movie is is trying very hard to hit a lot of expected beats that resulted in a movie that felt even though it moved fairly swiftly it felt overstuffed. Yeah. Right, there's just too much going on. Um they're also trying to work in, you know, the foundation of the rebellion, I guess. Yeah. That's kind of what <laughs> that group is is part of. Um so there yeah, there's just a lot of pieces there that I don't think were necessary to tell a good sort of origin Han Solo story, right? Just tell us about his past, show us some of the motivation for why he's the way that he is, and and then get out, right? You don't have to do all of this world building. But you can tell they were planning on doing multiple solo films. Like, this was not meant to be a standalone, right? The whole thing with Darth Maul at the... Oh, sorry. Spoilers. Um, I'll tell with you if you haven't seen it. <laughs> that one, that one character at the end, you know, like they were, they were definitely sort of planning yeah. that if they hit, they would do more. You know, solo two, solo three. I don't know. Um, which would render this one solo one, which I would think would be pretty ironic. <sighs> uh, but that didn't happen, and it probably won't, and that's likely for the best. And that's fine. Uh, yeah, but I, I really like Solo. I've, I've originally I was I was very sort of just middle of the road on it, but I've watched it several times since, and I actually really like what it's doing. And I feel bad that Alden Ehrenreich got caught in the middle of fanboy fire because he's actually really good, right? Is he Harrison Ford? No, but who is? Who who is and who could be and why would you ever want to try and and honestly have an imitator can we of, of let Harrison go Ford? of Harrison Ford being awesome because have you seen him lately it's he's old yeah. he's old and he's he has ear an earring and uh, I don't know I just don't I, just him in his old man pants just nothing broke my heart more than Indiana Jones four when he was wearing those baggy old man pants. It's like, oh, Indiana Jones is over. <laughs> You've got to prioritize comfort. I mean, come on. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I'm I'm certainly there as well. But, well, that's cool. I mean, I'm glad you've gotten a chance to sort of catch up on some of that stuff. And um, I know we've talked about it before, but I'll go ahead and, and recommend it again. Check out The Mandalorian. I'm very curious what you think of it. Uh, it is... It is certainly one of the more enjoyable Star Wars properties that I've engaged with in quite some time. Taika Waititi's in it. Richard Ayoade's in it. And I love him. I mean, it's just, it's good. It's smart uh, in a lot of ways. Not always, but it's good. I, I like it. And it, now that you have access to the, the Disney Pluses, I, I think it's, it's well worth your time. Especially because you can just bang right through it. I mean, just, you've got like 14 episodes to watch now. And it's... it's it's going to be good. Nice. But, I'm ready. All right. Yes. Prepare your body for Star Wars. <laughs> I'm going to fight in a Star right. Wars. 
But that's just one branch of the Disney media empire. We must discuss another branch, and that is, of course, the Wizard of Oz branch. Because, well, although the rights have shifted hands since then, in the 1980s, as it was getting started, Disney had fairly recently purchased the rights to Frank L. Baum's body of work, uh, mostly for development of rides at Disneyland, supposedly. They wanted very desperately to have a Wizard of Oz-themed attraction. Um, they never figured out what to do or how to do it, but they held on to the rights anyway. And in 1980, as director of Return to Oz, Walter Murch was sitting in a pitch meeting with the CEO of Disney at the time, he suggested that they might do well to revisit the Wizard of Oz. And everybody's ears perked up in the room. They're like, oh, well, we own that. What do you got? And so uh, Merch pitched a new Wizard of Oz film based on a couple of the sequel novels, which, unlike the story of the original Wizard of Oz, uh, which now is extremely well-known and, nay, timeless, uh, the sequels are lesser known. Um, and they are weird. Baum, they are exceedingly strange. Baum wrote, what is it, like 12? He 13? wrote 13, uh, the original yeah. 13. And then after his death, it was actually, it's actually been taken over by several different writers throughout mm -hmm. history. Um, and they've all kind of added their own voice and they've changed lore. But if you want to look at, you know, the original vision, I guess, for the series, Baum's first 13 novels would be your your best bet but really only the first one saw a huge amount of success exactly yes most people really only know the first book and the first book is by far the most commonly read the entire series is easy to come by and most of it now is in public domain but it's it's not a series that a lot of people followed after dorothy came back to kansas but Baum had many more stories to tell. Dorothy had many more adventures in Oz. Eventually she uh, moves many there. Of them exceedingly strange. Yeah, eventually she lives there. Um, which I think says a lot about uh, Frank L. Baum's opinion of our world um, and how, how great it is, yeah. i.e. It, it isn't. Uh, which this movie, I think, leans heavily into. Mm. Uh, I guess before we get into it, um, one of the things that I've always found sort of incredibly subversive about the story of Wizard of Oz, and this is basically stripped out of the film version completely, is that Oz is a fantasy land. But within that fantasy, there are layers of deception to maintain the facade. Yes. And this is most expressly illustrated through the Emerald City itself. Right? Because in the book, it is clearly indicated that the Emerald City is not, in fact, emerald. That it is more of a crystal city, and it's white. And it's simply called the Emerald City because the wizard forces everyone to wear green goggles all the time. Um, so it's quite literally you know, putting goggles over your eyes to see the world as someone else wants you to see it. The Wizard of Oz... And, and really the entire series is a great way to interpret and discuss simulacra and simulation, I think. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, and the whole idea of, you know, the Disneyland facades. It's really interesting that Disney ends up being in charge of this property because it, it this whole fantasy world, it's very critical of the, the Disney ethos, which I, I, I 
think it's interesting when Disney accidentally criticizes themselves. Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, it's. I guess the thing that's always fascinating to me is that it is the idea that fantasy is preferable, but you have to work to maintain the fantasy, hmm. right? The fantasy isn't going to simply exist. You know, you have to be out there scraping gum off the street at 3 a.m. to maintain the fantasy that this is a perfect world. You have to have it's an elaborate tunnel system itself. beneath your theme park to hide the people right. who clean up the trash. Exactly, because nobody can see them. <laughs> and and this film is very much about that, too. And, and, and the original Wizard of Oz was about that, right? Because Dorothy assembles the pieces of Oz from the world she knows back home, which this movie makes tremendous efforts to make sure that everything in Oz that Dorothy experiences has an analog back in the real world. Um, and it's, it, it, in terms of the structure of this story, it's really cleverly done. It's a bit overdone perhaps, but it's still effective at helping us basically by the end to answer, you know, ask the question, I suppose, what's real and what isn't, what did Dorothy make up and what is, you know, what is actually another land that a person can go into. And we don't know, and, and maybe in some ways Dorothy doesn't know, and that's okay, right? It's, it's, where, it's more a question of where do you feel happiest, and which one is going to give you that happiness. And, and that's all right. So it's a very, it's a very mature um, take on it, and one that if you only know the original film, will be bewildering to you. <laughs> yeah. Because... The basic thematic thrust of the original Wizard of Oz, and this is no secret, is going back to reality is what's best, right? There's no place like home. And and Dorothy believes that, and, and we believe that. It's a very simple concept to grasp onto. But this movie starts with the Dorothy that went back home and realized that home wasn't that great either, right? And it's a much more complicated idea, but it's a much more human idea, I think. And so this film, part of its terror, I suppose, comes from the fact that the life that Dorothy returned to is not quite as magical as we might hope it is. And uh, lacking in the adventure, the joie de vivre of Oz, if you will. So Return to Oz is uh, the story of Dorothy Gale in her second adventure through Oz. It is a blending of the second and the third books in Frank L. Baum's original series, both in characters and thrust of storyline. Uh, we do have some repeated characters from the original, of course, but there is no wizard in this one. The wizard is gone, uh, which causes tremendous problems in Oz, which Dorothy comes back to discover. And then we do get some interesting sort of analog characters or analogous characters. Uh, we do have another sort of version of the Tin Man here, which is very good. Uh, and then in lieu of a scarecrow, we have a pumpkin head. Man, <laughs> um, who is a great character. I was obsessed with him. Voiced by Brian Henson. Uh, yes, Love that sweet voice. All of, all of the, the effects and character work in this puppetry is, is all Henson Studios which uh, is pretty obvious by the style mm -hmm. because a lot of the ideas that were used in this film would be recycled uh, or were recycled from the Dark Crystal. Yeah. Um, including the wheelers and a few other sort of visual uh, elements and puppetry gags that Henson had developed. So a lot of crossover with Henson Studios there. Um, I also wanted to point out that uh, about halfway through the movie, they get a device that allows them to travel very quickly over Oz. Uh, that has a head on the front of it. 
what is it called? Gump? The Gump. I think it's called The Gump, right? Um, I just wanted to point out that The Gump, while it was voiced by an actor named Lyle Conway, uh, who did quite a bit of work in the 80s and 90s, the puppeteer, the visual effects supervisor who was in charge of The Gump, was none other than Stephen Norrington. Really? That's right. The director of Blade. Really? <laughs> he was. And the guy who voiced the Gump, Lyle Conway, plays Reichardt in Blade. <laughs> because they're buddies. And wherever Stephen Norrington goes, Lyle Conway goes too. I love so, it. Well, he was in The Dark Crystal too, wasn't he? He was. Yes, indeedy. Uh, so, uh, just an interesting thing since we've <laughs> talked so much about the early days of Marvel Studios. And how much we love Blade. Um, <laughs> and how much we love Blade. Uh, yeah, Stephen Norrington is the gump, at least the mechanical operations side of things, uh, which I found incredibly hilarious. So Return to Oz is uh, a much darker film. Uh, it has a fantastic cast. Feruza Balk in her, I think this is her first screen. This was her first movie. Um, Piper Laurie taking over as Auntie M, and she is amazing as always. Yeah. Uh, I love Piper Laurie. Um, we also have a few... Faces that were familiar to me as a kid because of their presence in other films. Um, one is uh, British actress Jean Marsh, uh, who I knew as Bav Morda. In Willow. Willow. That's what I knew her <laughs> from. Uh, which came out after this, but I saw before this. Uh, I was a big Willow guy back in the day. I had, po- I had a picture of uh, a poster of Val Kilmer as Mad Mardigan on my wall for pretty much the entirety of my childhood. I remember. That's my into my young adulthood um i probably still have that poster somewhere it's at mom's beautiful <laughs> yeah it's it's gotta be there so um yeah i had a willow poster book uh so i was it was into the willows uh and i well the brownies are still fantastic i love brownies kevin pollock's great anyway so uh, I knew her as Bab Morda, but she is here playing another dual role, um, mm. sort of an analog for our Wicked Witch. Uh, she is sort of in that, but not exactly. She plays a, uh, another character, but still very uh, intimidating and frightening. Uh, and then the other is Nicole Williamson, who I knew as Merlin in Excalibur. Yeah. And also the uh, wizard in Conan Two, or Conan the Destroyer, which is my favorite Conan film, um, because I watched it a bunch when I was a kid, and uh, it had Patricia Arquette in it. I think one of the Arquettes. No, it was the one that was on Different Strokes. I think. Um, all right, just a moment. I will discover this. She was she was very very beautiful, and uh, I remember watching that a bunch. Uh, Olivia de Abo, excuse me. Yes. So, anyway, I watched a lot of Conan the Destroyer, and he was also uh, the creepy wizard in Conan the Destroyer. So, I knew him from those, and here he plays another dual role, both as the doctor that Dorothy goes to visit in order to receive treatment for her visions, and he plays the Gnome King, uh, who is the, the primary villain of the film. So a lot of familiar 80s faces for me and and really good cast, really good setup and uh, quite a bit of fun. So let's talk about the failure. It was big because this it was pretty large. Uh, this film 
just like with Little Monsters, this film went through a regime change. Uh, so basically, the guy who had championed it at Disney, the original, the CEO that Walter Merchant talked to, he was ousted for a variety of reasons. The '80s was a bad time for Disney, Oof. real bad. The end of and the '80s saw the Renaissance, but it had to. We had to get to 1989 for Little Mermaid that's to happen. Right. We, it, it was dark, man. It was a rough time. And so, the incoming CEO, he did not like this film, and it was running over budget, and Walter Murch was working very slowly. Uh, I guess it's worth mentioning that Walter Murch is, is probably one of the most important figures in editing in the history of cinema. Uh, his book on editing is considered sort of necessary reading if you're going to become a film editor or an editor of any kind. Uh, he was also, he won multiple Oscars for his uh, work as a sound engineer, which was his original sort of job in Hollywood. Uh, so Murch is, is no joke, right? Murch is not an amateur director, quite the opposite, right? The man is, is accomplished. one of the, the most accomplished directors that we've probably talked about on this show uh, and may ever talk about on this show. But Return to Oz was a complicated project, uh, a lot of moving pieces, obviously a lot of tremendous pr uh, practical effects that had to be managed. But uh, Merch also had a very specific vision for what he thought the film should be, and that was dark and serious with a, a tone that matched that. And a lot of people at, the, at Disney at the time were against it, right? They, they did not see that being a viable course of action. So they made some changes. Things happened. Uh, Merch was removed from the film for a short period of time. <laughs> and then who rode in on his beautiful X-Wing and saved the day? But G -G -G -George. George. Uh, most, I guess we should say George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola. Because Walter Merch, early in his career, when he attended USC, uh, he became friends with George Lucas and uh, John Milius. <laughs> right? I mean, like some of these really big, very important filmmakers in the 1970s. Uh, he worked with Lucas and Coppola at uh, American Zoetrope producing films and uh, won an Oscar for his sound editing work on Apocalypse Now. So they kind of came in and said, hey, let him, you know, give him some money, let him finish the film. And supposedly George Lucas said, if he can't finish the movie, I will take over and I will finish the movie. Um, so this very nearly could have been a George Lucas film, uh, which would have been something else, especially yeah. to, considering he would have been working on, uh, well, he would have just finished Return of the Jedi at the point that they were making this. So in any case, it was a troubled production, as many you know, films from Disney in the 1980s were, but it has grown in stature in the last 30 years. Uh, many people love this film, and rightfully so, and and it has, has certainly gained a cult status, but it was not well-received initially, uh, and it did terribly at the box office. I want to say the budget was like close to 30 million, mm -hmm. something like that, uh, and they pulled in like 11, yeah. right? So it was, it was a pretty big bomb. And then the critic reaction wasn't great either. It was very middle of the road. Uh, according to our good friends at Rotten Tomatoes, about 53%. But again, that's weighted a little bit because we've got some modern reviews that have weighed in on it. Uh, it was much lower if you just look at the original reviews in the day. And they all had very similar things to say. Um, so I pulled a couple. First we have uh, Gene Siskel, good old Gene from the Chicago Tribune. Uh, Return to Oz is the kind of movie that encourages people to rent home videotapes of The Wizard of Oz and The Wiz. 
and this gets at the heart of what most critics reacted to is that a lot of people wanted that sort of rose gold 1930s aesthetic return to the style of the original Wizard of Oz. And this is not that. Um, it's very adept, it's very dark, and it's very complicated in its thematic storytelling, which the original Wizard of Oz is not. And so, in many ways, I, th I think it's interesting because this film foreshadows where Wizard of Oz is now, mostly because of Gregory Maguire. Mm -hmm. Right, because Gregory Maguire, and you know, say what you will about his take on the Wizard of Oz, it grew up. People love it. Um, Sorry, <laughs> my, you know, my uh, wife read through them all and and enjoyed them for what they are. He he expands on a lot of the 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 later mythology of of Frank L. Baum's books. He's obviously very well read, but you know, he spins them in his own direction and and sort of flips a lot of things around. You know, especially in terms of how the witches are perceived and things like that, which of course has been explored in, in other media like Wicked, the Broadway musical, etc. But um, more people now, I think, would be comfortable and probably are comfortable with exploring more complicated shades of what this world looks like. Whereas in the 1980s, basically all anybody knew would have been the TV reruns of The Wizard of Oz that ran every year around Thanksgiving. And That's what people knew. And see, like, I, this came out the year before I was born. So I've never known a world without Return to Oz and Wizard of Oz simultaneously. So I love both right. of these movies, no problem. Um, but I remember, like, our parents being sort of put off by return to Oz initially mm -hmm. just like this is weird and and it's nothing like the movie that I thought it would be right. but for me I mean you know we talked in in our last episode about being children of the 80s and what a weird time it was and all the things that you could get away with in films and it it sort of crafted a different opinion that's carried with me through my entire life and I think other film reviewers are starting to match up with that age group and that demographic. And it seems like films like this are being better received because of that. Maybe, I don't know. That's just, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think people, and once there's distance, right. Once you've got somebody looking back at something as an artifact rather than as a present thing, I think it's easier to see its nuances, appreciate it for what it Absolutely. is. You know? And I think that certainly happened too, but they're honestly they're not as far apart as people i think would initially think like I said, the original wizard of oz is, is pretty dark right? there's not a lot for the of, year it was made yeah um you know it's it's not like it's this you know completely perfect film like and it, and it was never meant to be but it's certainly i i think again it's one of those issues where your memory of what wizard of oz is is very different from what Wizard of Oz actually is, yeah. right? In terms of its storytelling and what it's trying to do. And this movie, while it sort of takes it in a different direction, it's still sort of resting on those laurels, right? It, it knows that you would have seen that movie, but then it tries to go in this very specific direction. Uh, part of it is it's more accurate in its time and setting. Like, tremendously. Uh, this film does a, tr a great job of making you believe that Dorothy lives in the pre-1900 American Midwest. 
which the first film, eh, sort of, you know, in so much as that it's on a farm and there's a lot of dirt, sure. But but this one really, you know, from the, the style of dress, the, the general demeanor of the people yeah. Dorothy associates with, i.e. miserable, <laughs> is, 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 is pretty good. Uh, you know, it, it just it has a little bit more weight to it in that way. Uh, which makes sense, given that merch came out of that sort of '70s era of, you know, very realistic filmmaking. Um, but so Siskel was not a fan. He wanted that that sort of like original feeling, and that was pretty common. Uh, the uh, review at Variety, which was not attributed to an author, but just the Variety staff. Return to Oz is an astonishingly somber, melancholy, and unengaging trip back to a favorite land of almost every American's youth. Which is not wrong. This is a very somber film. It's sad. Because in many ways, this is a film, at least for me, that is Dorothy realizing that the world that she lives in is not magical. And the and the terror of that, right? It, it's sort of a metaphor for growing up, right? The world will eventually intrude, and how long are you going to be able to hold out before it wins? Because it's it's just a matter of time. And 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 I think this movie tries to deal with that. And I remember this is a little cheesy, but I remember when I was younger, the thing that sort of stuck with me about the film was that nobody believed Dorothy, and I knew they wouldn't believe her. But it was that they wouldn't let her have her delusion at all. They right. wouldn't. They were intent on destroying. Yeah, they they wanted to take Oz away from her, no matter what. And as a super imaginative kid, I had imaginary friends. I had you know imaginary worlds. I was. I mean, you remember what I was like. You were there. Um, I do. Yeah. That was the most soul crushing part of it. It's like you can't even let her have this fantasy. This is awful. <laughs> Right, it's it's just, you know, how quickly... I, early on in the film, Auntie M basically says, you don't sleep anymore, and then when you wake up in the morning, you're no use to me. Yeah. Right, like, you're a functional tool for the world in which we inhabit, and unless you can find value there, then I don't know what to do with you. Heartbreaking. And I, I think it's, it's, it's a, a very sort of practical look at the you know, the expansion of the United States and the sort of hard-mindedness and practicality of the people that made those expansion moves. Prairie life. And, yeah, you know, I mean, in a lot of ways, there are shots in this that feel like it's Little House on the Prairie, not quite as nice and, you know, there's no Michael Landon rolling down the hill with a big smile on his face or anything, but it feels a piece with those things. Uh, you know, it feels a, a part of that world because it very much is turn-of-the-century America. But, um yeah, I, I think that that's where the somber tone comes from. Is that it's this is pe these are people who have no time for imagination. They have no time for art. Uh, no time for beauty. Right. Everything is is how fast can it be done? How quickly can it be built? Right. How fast can we move? And and it is sad. Right. And, and it is unfortunately the track that so many people are put on as we, we you know, survive. Um, all right, so Janet Maslin, New York Times, frequent flyer of the podcast. The work of ingenious technicians who seem either not to know what gave the original film its magic or not to care. Oh. 
God. Yeah. Um, so this was uh, another sort of common sentiment in a lot of the views that I read is that it, the film just doesn't have any sauce, right? There's, there's no sauce there. That that magical mixture of film power that sort of just flows over you, which is very esoteric and very difficult to define. But a lot of film reviewers seemed intent on communicating that idea at the very least. Um, but this one, you know, she she basically broils it down to just a bunch of really highly capable filmmakers, but with nothing you know, to say behind the scenes. Uh, and then Richard Schickel from Time Magazine, any movie in which a Midwestern prairie actually looks more attractive and interesting than the enchanted land over the rainbow is in trouble. What? Um, which we'll talk about that, but there is a story justification for that because Oz is in a bad place when Dorothy arrives. Uh, things have fallen apart in significant ways and the beautiful world that she knew has turned into a wasteland. Um, because one of the things that Baum was, was very prescient about in terms of, I guess we could say speculative fiction, is time difference, right? The, the time in our world flows differently than time in Oz. Yeah. And when Dory went, Dorothy went home, even though she's only been home for a few months, uh, the house to replace the house and the tornado hasn't even been finished yet. But in Oz, it's been... I, I, are we ever told a date? But I think we're supposed to be. Been it looks like it's been years. Couple. Yeah, it's it's been decades, right? Uh, maybe even a hundred years since Dorothy left. Um, so I certainly understand the complaint, but again, that's the story that they're telling: is that Oz has collapsed and Dorothy needs to put it right. And I thought the look of um, Oz was cool. I don't know. Yeah, it's it, you know, magical is a hard thing to define. What is magical? But it's it's darker. There's a lot of sand. You know, they fly over the wasteland. The deadly desert. In the other place, you know. So there's there's a lot of those things going on too. So I certainly understand the darker tone, but um, again, it's it's hard to define something as nebulous as a magical feeling. But it's hard to overstate how important the step out of Dorothy's crashed house into the Technicolor world of Wizard of Oz. Exactly, Wars and at the time. and I don't think you or and it's I. It's going to be hard to get that feeling. Exactly, right. and I don't think you or I will ever be able to understand what that was like. No. Um, much as I would I mean, like to. In the world that had it. Um, you know, yeah, like I mean, our grandparents were there for that moment. You know when. It's in color. Holy shit. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I can't imagine what that would have been like. <laughs> yeah. And especially that particular deployment of color as well. Like just the, you know, cause it, the moment she walks out the door, the, we're on the color film, but you know, all the lights are off. So everything's dark and it looks black and white. And then, you know, explosion of color on screen. It's a, it's a remarkable moment and one that still holds up. But again, what film is going to be able to replicate that? And I think that these filmmakers made the decision from the beginning. It's like, we're not even going to try. Like, mm -mm. don't even try and replicate that moment because all people are going to do is point it out as being weird. In fact, I always kind of liked that it's the inverse of that moment when she does arrive back in Oz and it's not pretty. Where, you know, there's, there's this kind of immediate disappointment where you expect, you know, the door to fly open or for her to, in this case, get out of a crib. Um... And see, like, you know, the beauty of Oz and the Emerald City and everything that, you know, we expect. And then it's just not there. <laughs> and I kind of yeah, love that. 
again, it's it's a, a good inversion if you do follow this on from the original, right? Or at least attempt to. Uh, and then so, since we had such a good time with this last week, uh, I went ahead and decided to pull a few Google user reviews. Hell yeah! Uh, return to Oz. Uh, I focused on the one-star reviews this time. There were quite a few five-stars. A lot of people you know, had fairly well-written screeds about this being their favorite film. So, I mean, it's obviously good. But I wanted to pick on a couple of people who didn't care for it. So, uh, this is from Kara. This is 10 months ago. Please don't ever watch this film. <laughs> Probably the weirdest thing I have ever watched. Literally no idea what was going through the person who directed this film's head. But they need help. Dang. It's so unbelievably random and scary. <laughs> and there are weird talking rocks, <laughs> headless princesses, and strange pumpkin head people. Honestly, I beg you, it's so weird. <laughs> Never watch it. And again, that's Kara. Sorry, Kara. Uh, it's so weird. It's so random. Watch it. Random. How could it possibly be anything else? Um, you know, and, and I, could, I can totally understand somebody watching this movie and just not getting it. Because, again, one of the things that gets lost about Frank Elbaum's world is that it's weird as shit. Yeah. Right? I mean, think about even the original, the one that everybody feels cool with, right? Dorothy drops a house on a witch, steals her shoes, follows a dilapidated yellow walkway, meets a scarecrow who can talk, a man made of tin, and a lion. <laughs> and then those three go on an adventure <laughs> to meet a wizard who's actually a snake oil salesman <laughs> slash magician from Kansas who has somehow dominated an entire race of people. That movie had a lot more twists and turns than I remember. <laughs> convinced them that the city that they live in is made of emerald when it's actually not. Hmm. And built a bunch of elaborate contraptions to convince them that he's actually a wizard instead of, you know, just a huckster. And then she, he gets in a flying balloon, a hot air balloon, to travel back to Kansas. And then Dorothy clicks her shoes together and goes home. Um, that movie is bananas. Yeah, but it's classic, so, you know. But it's classic and you know it, right? And and what's to be noted here is that that base story, Baum took it and then got weirder. Like, way weirder. Yeah, if you look at, like, the geography of Oz... As a, a place, it's very strange. And this movie touches on some of the strangeness of Oz. Um, especially like geographical locations and how Oz is laid out. Is that we tend to think of it as just like the Munchkins and mm -hmm. the Yellow Brick Road and then the Emerald City. And, and the Winkies. And the, the Winkies. About the Winkies. Um, but there's... You know, there's there's Winky Country, there's Munchkin Country, there's like Quadling Country, there's mm -hmm. uh, uh, like the Land of Ev, which is further. That's like over the desert, the the Deadly Desert, the Impassable Desert. Mm -hmm. um, it actually has different names because it's Impassable Desert, and it's messed up. Like the world of Oz is just very very weird. It's some of the strangest 
entry into it's one of the strangest entries into fantasy fiction writing and i don't think people give it a lot of credit for that no and it it came so early in the construction of what we would now call american you know speculative fiction or fantasy fiction um it's it's completely not influenced by it's it, it's more influenced by people like jules verne yeah Right, like the like that kind of science fiction you can see was sort of at the in the outskirts of Baum's, uh, you know, sort of visage, right? You know, the, the hot air balloons and you know the sort of strange lands. Uh, and for turn of the century, of that makes Doyle, perfect sense. You know? That's yeah, that's perfect for for when the books were written. Um, but it, as a result, it feels untethered, right? Like it's just someone exploring and seeing where they go without all of these modern trappings mm-hmm. of what might be expected. And that gives it a lot of life. But it, it also, if, if you don't know those things or are aware of those things, and all you know is the original, which feels very controlled, right? It feels very sort of under, yes, it's strange, but it's understandably so. But this spins further away. Um, but not to ill effect, right? It's just something you kind of have to be along for the ride. Uh, all right, so one more Google review. And this is from Aisling. This is six months ago. This film is absolutely shocking. <laughs> I remember watching this as a child, and it scarred me. And watching it again as an 18-year-old, I found it even more haunting. Mm-hmm. There are so many issues with this movie. Namely, there are no tunes. All of the characters are completely different, and the scarecrow is terrifying now. Oh, what? Wheelers. Oh, well. Just wheelers. That's all she said. For some reason, the chicken is the key to success. <laughs> and it makes literally no sense. And what? We'll- Waste. We will circle back to the the chickens because that's from the books. Oh yeah, no, that's Belina is straight out of the book, uh, and really felt like it, it just really seemed like he didn't want to take Toto back again because he had established that Toto in the original couldn't talk, but yet I I think basically he was confronted with a certain reality once Oz was a place where animals could speak that he had kind of glossed over in the original book that Toto couldn't adopt speech and uh, he needed to deal with that. Now the movie just drops that idea completely, right? Like the, none of the animals talk, not even the flying monkeys, even though they seem to be capable of understanding speech, they never generate speech. Um, You know, so the original film had no context for the animals speaking at all. But in the book, he had made it fairly clear that animals could talk, like the Cowardly Lion, right? So I guess the Cowardly Lion talks. But since he's main character, I don't think he really... That doesn't hit that he feels special in some way. But you don't really get the impression that there's an entire, like, family of lions back there, and they all talk. Yeah. uh, Like there is in the book. And so he wanted... I think he just wanted to reset and have Belina talk when she gets to Oz. Whereas having Toto talk probably would have been a little weird. So it's 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 a really, really fascinating um, sort of take on things. But uh, yeah, Belina's cool. And eggs are pretty important. Mm-hmm. Things, you know? 
So the common problems, just to sum them up. Uh, one, this film's fucking terrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, like <laughs> there's legitimately terrifying moments in it. Uh, that it's nothing like the original, or at least not enough to where people would feel comfortable. That it's kind of boring. Not a lot happens, which, again, that's a little bit of could be, maybe, depending. Uh, and then that it doesn't have magic. Right? Mm. It doesn't have that, mm, the bigness of it mm. all. So, uh, if that sounds intriguing to you at all, dear listener, go ahead, pause, go check out the film. It is streaming on Disney Plus if you want to go watch it there. Uh, and there are a few other places where it's available too, I believe. But go check it out, come back, and uh, we're going to get into it. So, this film opens with Dorothy in bed. We get a nice long tracking shot through her room, sort of establishing things. With and again, this this is a a bedroom in the American Midwest pre nineteen hundred. It is all quilts and little wooden toys and cheap garbage because what else can you afford? Yeah. Right. Sorry. Um, I was just going to comment on something that will no doubt come up again. The soundtrack, the score for this film is incredible. Um, the composer didn't really do a lot that I knew of. He's married to Talia Shire. Uh, I discovered that, but the Coppola connection. But uh, I I couldn't find you know any other scores that really stood out. But this. This score stands out to me. Like, I love the opening music for this movie. Um, I can remember being a kid and, and just absolutely loving the little, the little orchestral piece that opens the film. I, I don't know. It's exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quiet, um, a bit reserved, but yet at the same time, it's, it's got a real, there, there's a real heart to it. Uh, again, Merch was a sound designer, so this movie sounds good. The sound effects are great pretty much throughout. Um, but so she's lying awake. She's looking at the stars. She's struggling to sleep. Um, again, uh, Piper Laurie plays Auntie M. She comes in to check on her, realizes she's awake. And then we get the conversation, right? So we're going to find out very quickly what the plan is because Dorothy is having problems since her return from Oz. She won't stop talking about it. She won't let it drop, which they are encouraging her repeatedly to do. And so they are seeking help. And so we're kind of running headlong here into uh, a very popular phenomenon around the turn of the century in the United States, and that is health and wellness. Um, thanks to benefactors, if you want to call them that, like our, our good friends, uh, Kellogg. What was his first? Which, which Kellogg was it? I don't remember. But basically, the guy that came up with Kellogg's cereal, his reason for doing that was because, you know, you needed to have a good breakfast in order to be healthy. He ran these wellness centers that you could have gone to to, you know, improve your health, to be fit, do breathing exercises. Right? But we had this explosion of interest in wellness and all of the ways that the body could be manipulated and changed, right? Really, the burgeoning moments of science sort of running into health and wellness, right? Which had not always been the case in the 1800s. And so they're going to send Dorothy to a clinic to receive treatments for her issues. And um, it's, it's an interesting way to begin, right? Because the threat to Dorothy is immediately laid bare, right? 
I think, again, this film knows you've seen the original. It is assuming that you know who Dorothy is and what she's been through. And it wants you to believe that what Dorothy has been through is true. Right? That she did have those experiences and, and we're supposed to be on Dorothy's side. The, the problem is, is that, as you said, nobody believes her. Yeah. And so reality is setting in very, very quickly. And, you know, reality is, is not great for Dorothy, right? Because the next, you know, sort of morning we get the wide shot of the farm. And whereas the farm in the original Wizard of Oz is sort of, you know, yes, it's a farm, but it's, it's kind of beautiful. You it know, was it very quaint. Like farm on, yeah, it feels like the farm on Lassie, right? It's the farm that everybody envisions in their mind that people owned. This film, it shows you a wide shot, and it's a tiny little crap house next to a tiny little crap barn in the middle of a big field. It's an overcast it's, day, you know? It's not bright right, and like sunny. It's, it, <laughs> no, it's it's not beautiful. It's it's life, and it's not great, and it's it's harsh. So, you know, Dorothy's attempting to do her chores. We're introduced to Belina the chicken, who hasn't been able to lay eggs for quite some time, which is putting her in danger as well. I mean, you know, think about what we've been told so far. Dorothy, our hero, or heroine, uh, is, is going to be... <laughs> is going to go get her brain scrambled. And this chicken, if she can't lay eggs... Is going to end up in the fryer. Is, is going to be dinner, right? So They're in the same boat. They're in the same boat, exactly, right? The Dorothy is also going to end up in the fryer if she can't prove herself useful, right? It's not about love. It's not about support. It's about how much can you get done on the farm for me? And if you cease to be useful, if you cease to have a practical purpose to be here, then what what use are you, right? We'll give you a use. And it's it's a very, again, it's it's dour, right? There's... You know, I like that Feruza Balk plays Dorothy as, as still optimistic, still a believer, right? But everyone else around her has very obviously become the opposite of that. Feruza Balk is so wonderful in this movie. Um, like, what a little star. <laughs> I was kind of sad that her career didn't get bigger. I mean, you know, she made some different choices and didn't get a lot of project af projects after this, and is certainly not as a child. Um, but boy, she's right. really, really good as Dorothy. Just that sweet and wholesome thing, but it dials back the Judy Garland big voice. Where you know we never really bought Judy Garland as a young girl. I don't. I don't no, know what anybody and did. <laughs> and that's probably part of the issue is that in the original books, Dorothy's like ten. Right, she's maybe eleven. Um, she's extremely young, and you know, child actors were not uncommon in Hollywood at the time. But the project that they were building for Wizard of Oz required a professional singer for Dorothy. Right, they had big musical numbers planned. Dorothy had to lead it, so they they skewed older. Right, they they found a Dorothy who could be that that character for them. But this in adhering closer to the books is is more age appropriate for dorothy right because the idea of dorothy being a 15 or 16 year old girl having that experience is very different than a 10 year old girl having that experience yeah. 
And so this film attempts to roll that back. But again, that's going to be confusing for people that aren't familiar with the original Baum stories. If all you think of is Judy Garland as a, you know, 15 year old waif singing about the rainbow, then this is going to seem confusing that Dorothy is so much younger. But this is, I mean, accuracy to the original book is not necessarily, you know, mandatory, but this is closer to what Baum had in mind because these were stories that were written basically for his own children, right? And they were this age. And so he was trying to write stories for them and about them. Um, so the, the film very quickly gets to, gets to business, right? So Dorothy finds a key the next morning um, a key that very clearly has Oz in the handle. Again, Antium completely puts this down. It's just a key to the old house. I must have used it a thousand times. It's not a key to Oz. Don't be ridiculous. Um, and if and if you're not sure of what Merch is going for here, like as they are taking the trip to the clinic and going through these tiny towns in Kansas, so bleak. I mean, we see. It's bleak. It's flat. I mean, we we see legitimate settlers, right? Pioneers with the cabins and or with the wagons and the whole nine yards, like posted up for an evening before they move on, right? Like this is that time period. It's that time of, of expansion and, and solidification. And then once we finally arrive at the clinic, we see civilization. Yeah. Right. We've gone from nothingness to now we're in the civilized world, a home made of brick. with electricity. Right? Only housing. With electricity, exactly. We've, we've, you know, the I really do like the kind of half-built house that they're living in. That they're all basically they built one half of the house to live in, so they could finish the other half of the house. Uh, there are quite a few you know stories of that being the case for for settlers that they would basically build something livable as quickly as possible, and then just slowly finish out the rest, and then knock out the walls so that they could have the, the larger space. But it's it's a really great juxtaposition, right? You know, we see and and we see how out of place even Auntie M is in this world, right? She doesn't fit here either. Uh, neither of them really do. Uh, so Nicole Williamson is introduced here as uh, Doctor Joslyn. Uh, JB uh, 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 Doctor Worley. Worley, yeah. There we go. And, you know, there are a couple of cool things here. Again, as we, as we said, this movie tries very hard to establish that the things that Dorothy experiences in Oz have ties back to the real world. So he's wearing this, like, red uh, ruby uh, pinky ring, which, of course, becomes important later for the Gnome King, who surrounds himself with jewels. And uh, And he gives a very good performance here because we're obviously supposed to see him as intimidating, right? He's frightening because he's powerful. But at the same time, Williamson plays it in such a way that he, you can definitely read it as pleasant, right? He doesn't feel like he's going to do something terrible to Dorothy. He feels like he's going to help We've her. had interactions with doctors get, like this before, you know? Yeah, you know, I mean, this, this would be considered fairly typical bedside manner. Uh, we get a little... I've always seen the... He's introducing the electric machine that he's going to use to try and deal with the excess electrical signals <laughs> in Dorothy's brain. Basically, this is shock therapy. Right? This is a, the early stages of electroshock therapy where they would pump electricity through another person's brain in an attempt to help them deal with a, ma a malady of the And mind. I suppose in many ways it uh, did help 
But it created some uh, other problems sure. too. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a fairly terrifying <laughs> technology by modern standards. Uh, electroshock therapy does have some uses in very controlled circumstances, but um, again, and as part of this health and wellness movement of the 1900s, it was one of the many over-prescribed yeah. uh, procedures to try and help people who struggled with mental problems. Um, I do like how, I don't, I don't know about you, but I've always seen the electric man, you know, he like points out that the machine has kind of a face mm -hmm. in it. I've always seen that as sort of like the precursor for TikTok. Yes. Right. Like, you know, sort of setting him up as the character. So that's where she gets him from and, uh, and whatnot. But of course she sees Ozma for the first time in the reflection as the adults are talking. And again, if you are not familiar with Baum's additional work, um, you would this would be a sort of confusing plot point, right? Because uh, he establishes in the later books that there are, are there were rulers of Oz before the wizard showed up, and the wizard basically just kind of took over for them. <laughs> he sort of inserted himself into that process in a way that he probably shouldn't have. And one of those rulers, or potential rulers, was the princess of Oz, Ozma. And, and so this film deals heavily with her and Dorothy's relationship to her. And it's, it's an interesting point, but again, one that the, the original film doesn't really prepare you for at all. So I, again, I could see people being kind of confused by it. Um, but very quickly, we realize that uh, Dorothy is going to be left here, right? Um, Auntie M can't stay with her because she's got to get back to the farm. Obviously, he can't run the place by himself. So she's going to be left in this place all alone. Um, this, again, if we're talking about truly terrifying moments in children's films, this is it. Right? Uh, being dropped off into a, a new location that's not especially warm, and then just being ditched. Yeah. Um, we get a lot of really interesting stuff here. Uh, Jean Marsh is introduced as the, the sort of head nurse, I suppose. And, you know, she's immediately terrifying. You know, high-necked dress, all in black. The costumes Harsh in this face. movie are incredible. Like, this has beautiful they costumes. Are. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's worth noting that Marsh's dress in this is an obvious play at the... the primary dress worn by the Wicked Witch yeah. of the West in the original. Uh, the high, you know, puff sleeves, the narrow waist, the flowing skirt. It's, you know, the visual analog to her as the Wicked Witch is, is very obvious and very, very pointed. Um, she doesn't have much to say or anything, but she's obviously harsh. She, you know, just sort of gets Auntie M out the door so that she can take over. But it is important to note that she's not a bad person person necessarily but she's just very unfriendly everyone here is unfriendly um and they have counterparts in oz when dorothy gets there of course you know they, they the same actors they have counterparts mm -hmm. but it's important to point out that none of these people are bad people no. <laughs> and i've always found no, that really interesting quite the not evil at all <laughs> yes they're they're not evil at all um Again, maybe intimidating to a child because they're new and they're they're strange. But no, no one is overtly evil here, right? Uh, you know, nobody's riding along on their 
thing saying, I'm going to kill your dog. You know, like there's none of that. Yeah. You know, nobody's doing that here. It's quite literally just, we are here to help you, but we have very specific things to do. Let me take you to your room, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the wheelers are set up too. There's a squeaky wheel on uh, one of the, the hospital beds, you know, that kind of thing. So that's, that's kind of a neat little moment here. Again, the film is very good about sort of establishing this ambiguity, right? Is what's happening to Dorothy real or is it just in her head? Is it just a figment of her imagination? And, and it is a legitimate question. <clears throat> Again, the adults want you to believe that it's all in her head and she can be fixed. Dorothy, it's real, right? Every, every, this fantasy exists. And I think one of the things that the film does that's uncomfortable, but intentionally so is that it wants you to choose. Yeah. Right. Um, Again, I, I hate to use this as a reference because it's so obvious, but this is one of the reasons why I love the ending of Inception. It's not because it's a stellar ending. It isn't. It's fine. But its ambiguity forces you, as the viewer, to make a decision about what's there. Yeah. He's not going to give you all... He'll give you lots of evidence and clues to sort of set yourself up as what you want, but you have to decide, is Cobb going home to reality and happiness, or is this all in his head, right? You've got to figure it out. You've got to understand it for yourself. And the decision that you make is fine. And this film, I think, is in a very similar space, where if you want to believe that Dorothy is out of her gourd, you know, schizophrenic child or something, uh, go ahead. But you can also choose to believe that Dorothy's fantasy is real and that all fantasies can be real. And, and I think that's a very challenging idea for a children's film. Um, to particular children, I think it's going to be an idea that they can grab very, very quickly and, and really wrap their heads around. But maybe not for everybody. It's, it's a fairly complicated idea to set up and i'm not going to say the film does it perfectly but it certainly isn't interested in telling you one way or the other and that in and of itself is, is intriguing at the very least um so dorothy is is taken to her room left alone uh, and once again she is approached by a mysterious girl uh at this point we don't really know who the girl is but uh again it is ozma a princess and she brings her a pumpkin head, which of course also sets up some things and sort of propels us to our, our next position uh, because just as before, a storm comes in. Not a tornado this time, but a storm. Uh, a, a Kansas blow, right? Uh, a gale. <laughs> but as the storm, uh, go I on, was sorry. just laughing. Dorothy Gale. <laughs> sorry, uh, I know, right? like, you know the wind. The winds are blowing. Right? Um, but as the storm is going, Dorothy is is taken away to receive her first treatment. And so we get the, the squeaky wheel on the the bed. She's still wearing the freaky witch dress. The the various orderlies and their white jackets are intimidating and frightening and scary. Um, and, you know, this, I think, plays on just about everybody's fears of, of feeling out of control in a 
medical or hospital setting, right? This is this is a, a general point of fear for a lot of people. Uh, movies like Jacob's Ladder have explored it in similar fashion, you know, being strapped to a gurney, unable to move, and asked to sort of go through this terrifying space. And this film does it in, in similar fashion, right? It's, it's meant to be scary. Um, so the machine is, is hooked up, and she's about to receive her first electroshock. We get these nice long holding shots of Gene uh, Marsh's character, the nurse, holding the little earphones. Uh, you know, just oh my gosh! Holding the little earphones. This is this was really go. scary to me as a kid. This scene in particular, because I'm like, what the hell are they even doing to her? Because at the time, I didn't really understand what electroshock therapy was. No, but you know it's terrifying. You know that this can't be good. And, uh, and in most cases, you would be correct. Yeah. <laughs> uh, especially for Dorothy, right? Dorothy doesn't need this, right? She's not broken. We've seen what she's been through. And so it's, it's a lot of dials and switches. There's even the, the turning of the, the key, the electric key, um, which we see again with, with uh, TikTok later in the film. But so right at the moment that everything... Uh, reaches its tensest point. She's about to get her first shock. The electricity goes out. Right? The storm is blowing out the electricity. And, and here's where everything accelerates. Ozma reappears, frees Dorothy. They take off out into the, the stormy and night. And like, this is, this is and, basically a dark mental institution and there are two children running around trying to escape. This mm -hmm. is so scary. And there's screams in the background and you know the sounds of people struggling. It's it's really intense. Right. This time instead of a tornado we get a flood. Which was another potential in Kansas, right? The the thing that I find interesting is that this is a terrifying scene, and Dorothy is scared, so we're supposed to be scared. But the adults are legitimately terrified for Dorothy. Like, they are trying to help her, because she's doing things that could very well get her killed. Yes. Um, and, and it's this weird balance that Merch strikes here with both the visuals and the audio and that score at establishing that there's threat but yet if you read the scene in its entirety it's obvious that none of the adults want anything but the best for dorothy they're not trying to hurt her but it looks like they are <laughs> it, it looks like they are dorothy is interpreting it that way because she's scared and and it sort of creates this fascinating layer of complexity in in these moments as you know, her terror is our terror, so we perceive them as being the villains when they aren't necessarily. Uh, but regardless, Dorothy is able to uh, propel herself into, a, I think, crib is an apt term. It's supposed to be some kind of shipping crate. Yeah, but it it, down it always reminded play. me of, like, the, the wooden, you know, play pens that kids ended up in. And that's kind of what it looks like. Yeah, there, I mean, there's like a name plan. I was like Cottonwood something or other, you know. It's, but yeah, it feels like a playpen. It feels like a prison, um, and I think there is some, you know, some symbolic metaphor to be had there that Dorothy was imprisoned in Kansas, quite literally, and now she has you know, achieved freedom to a certain extent. 
But uh, so the weirdness continues as Dorothy awakens. She finds that uh, she's been joined by Belina, the chicken. Uh, and now Belina is fully capable of speech. Yeah. Um, the uh, the puppetry here is, is pretty good. I mean, it's it's very much a Henson chicken. You can tell it's got the, the Hallmark qualities. But Merch wastes no time in throwing us off our expectations, right? The last shot we were shown was Dorothy on the middle of a vast ocean, floating inside of the crib. But when she awakens, she's inside a small puddle in the desert. And pretty much right off the bat, he's working very hard to establish that this is not the Oz that Dorothy landed in last time. Yeah. Uh, it's desolate. It's broken in a lot of ways. It's still got green. It's still got trees. You know, the things that we would expect, but it's not the same. It seems like, very empty, whereas Oz was never empty before. Right. Yeah, it was full of life. Right, whether it was plant life or, you know, talking trees or, or what have you, you know, there was there was existence there. But not here. Right? And so the, the water continues to erode and finally they begin their adventure, if you want to call it that. Um, but the other thing that I think Merch does a very good job of almost immediately is establishing that anything in Oz can hurt you. Yes. <laughs> Right. There is nothing in Oz that could not be a source of danger. Because uh, as Dorothy is, is leaving the sands, she decides to stay on the rocks. Is there a reason for that? I don't remember. Um, she realizes um, where she is. Yeah, she's in the desert. She's desert, like this. Right? If this is the deadly desert, then if we touch the sand, we're going to turn to sand. Um, you know, Dorothy, it's interesting... Dorothy knows a lot more about Oz than we're given than we saw in the original yeah. film. So in that way, again, like it feels a bit more like books um, and it feels more like that content as opposed to a direct connection to that film, even though it is because mm -hmm. we didn't get any of this context. So she knows so much more about Oz than, than she ever did. It kind of suggests that she was there in between the original film and this one. Um, right, where in reality she was just in Oz a lot longer in yeah. the book, and her adventure to get to the Emerald City was much longer. Exactly. Um, you know, in in the uh, in the movie, you know, they hit the Yellow Brick Road, they stop in a couple of spots, and then they're at the Emerald song, City. song, song, uh, walk, break, song. <laughs> but in this one, not so much. Uh, so she avoids the deadly desert. We're immediately introduced to uh, some kinds of creatures in the rocks which of course are important and they figure out pretty quickly who she is. Uh, some nice effects. Uh, I, I like a lot of the, I, I like the, the rock effects quite a bit. They're doing some really interesting animation with them, uh, especially when they're like just in a flat wall and talking. Uh, it's very cool. It's obviously claymation, yeah. but it's, it's all in these like flat layers and it looks really cool. Um, but uh, I do like the tree with the lunch. That's I that you know I love food, so that was my fantasy as a child. If it could just grow on trees like that, and I wouldn't have to do anything, I could just have a chicken sandwich and I could just open it up from a pail. It's just right there. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that's great about it, though, and and it can be said 
without reservation in this film is that the production design is is excellent. Um, This is a well thought out design concept, right? They really have thought about the uniformity of the world, what things should look like, how things should feel. It's it's excellent. Um, But then probably one of my favorite scenes in the film, Dorothy rediscovers her old house, the house that she dropped in from Kansas in. Uh, and it's, you know, collapsed. It's it's in disarray. But again, it's it's also not what we would expect because where she dropped in the first one, it was inside the Munchkin Village, and you know, she points out where the Wicked Witch, you know, was crushed, and all of these things. She kind of bringing Belina up to speed and us, I suppose, just in case you haven't seen the original and know the story. Uh, but then our our first moment of shock as she discovers the yellow brick road. But the yellow brick road is now in complete and total disrepair. Uh, it's, it's collapsed. It's you know, this beautiful thing that once existed is no longer there. And Furzabak kills in yeah. that scene. Uh, it's, she's really good. Because this is where she realizes for the first time that Oz has changed and that something is wrong. Um, you know, again, she's being followed by the, the rocks and, and, you know, they're watching her progress. They've already noted that she brought a chicken along, which has freaked them all out. So we know that there's something up with that uh, right from the start, which is kind of cool. But it's it's really interesting inverse of the original because she tries to do what she did last time, which is follow the Elric Road. But... You know, pretty much right away we know it's not going to be the same. It's not yeah. going to work. And it's just such a devastating moment, right? Because the the yellow brick road in the first one is beautiful. The and it's the assurity of answers are on their way, right? We can all find our path, mm-hmm. but this time we, that's been taken away from Dorothy. Her journey is not going to be as simple as following a simple path to a destination. Um, the other thing that I love about this, and I, as I said earlier, in the original Frank L. Baum book, the Emerald City is not made of emerald. Right? Everybody wears emerald goggles to convince themselves the city is emerald. It's just a regular city. Right? It's very beautiful, but it's just a city, and it's more white and crystal than it is emerald. And this film leans into that. The, the city that she sees that used to be the Emerald City is not Emerald at all. Uh, and so they're, they're obviously sort of playing in that idea uh, and, and aligning themselves closer to the books. There's certainly hints of green all over the city, but it is not an Emerald City in the traditional sense. But then we move into a very, very haunting sequence because not only has the emerald city fallen into disrepair and decay but the terror really comes from the fact that all of its inhabitants all of the people that dorothy loved and appreciated the last time she was there have all been turned to stone um the props are fantastic in this entire sequence the sets yeah are some amazing. of these are really good um this is probably one of my favorite sets in the entire movie. Um, but it is really, really terrifying. And we have 
our first introduction to uh, the Wheelers. <laughs> the Wheelers. Um, so the Wheelers, uh, again, if you were a fan of, of Henson Productions, uh, you have seen the Wheelers before. The Wheelers were also employed in the Dark Crystal. They were the... Uh, I can't remember the name of the creatures. Basically, the long-legged creatures that they ran on uh, is basically the same technology, although those were uh, run on stilts rather than wheels. So this is a, a, a slight advancement of the technology, but it's the same principle. Basically, you have people wearing uh, you know, hyper extensions on their arms and legs for mobility, and it creates an incredibly disturbing silhouette. Yeah. Just... Uh, their proportions are wrong. Their movements are. They have wrong. the double face it's, thing because they have the a, a mask that's like on the top of their heads, right. and then they can raise their heads, and you see their actual. It's just it's horrible. They're horrible. They are they are horrifying villains, and pretty much right from the start, they they laugh incessantly. Um, it's it's a, they're striking villains. Um, you know, they're dressed sort of like court jesters. So I, I so it seems like they're supposed to be sort of sort of these. Maybe they used to be humorous characters or figures, but they've been mutated or morphed into something else. And you know, Mombi has has corrupted them in some way. But again, they're the orderlies from the hospital as mm-hmm. well. So I mean, they're they're the wheelers, the people who would wheel. But I mean, her like they, they her. chase her into a dark hallway that has no end. It's so scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, I mean, if this is pointed towards um, children, you know, towards little kids, this is a pretty pretty terrifying set of moments here, because. Again, in the original Oz, Dorothy is a little bit older. She feels a bit more assured of herself and more capable. Um, in this one, she's a kid. Right? She's ten. What's she supposed to do against these characters? And uh, fortunately, in the room that she's able to escape into with the use of the Oz key, she finds a, a tin soldier, in essence. Right? So in the original story, it was a tin man. Right Now it is a tin soldier. Uh, here, the eponymously named TikTok, right? Because he is a clockwork soldier. Um, I like this. I, I loved TikTok. Uh, as a kid, uh, you know, you mentioned like Jack being you know, one of your favorite characters here. TikTok was my favorite character yeah. in this movie. Um, he is a, a source of stability for Dorothy in Oz now. Um, we never really saw anything like him before, but we get the impression that he wasn't really needed in the Oz before, right? The Oz before was was fairly peaceful, whereas now they needed an army to fight off some of these things. But so in, in this room, she finds TikTok, she reads the instructions, and just like the electric machine that was going to be used on her, he has to be wound up. Right? You know, the charge has to be generated. So she winds, the, winds him up and gets him going. 
and uh, man, I just I love this character. It's a cool. Design. I love the it's sound. Really good you can tell that a sound designer yeah. had a big hand in this <laughs> in our director because the sound really is amazing. I love like all of the clockwork sounds when she's winding him up. The you know his footfall, how it's kind of loud and clunky. I don't know. TikTok is really cute. <laughs> yeah, he's a cool character. Um, he feels a piece with the soldiers that she might have seen in the time period as well um she does have a horse on like a mechanical horse on her uh, dresser when we're getting our first pan into her bedroom so I, i'm assuming that you know TikTok is justified in the story both with the electrical story and then just the idea of the, the sort of clockwork toy in general but um the choice to make his mustache move <laughs> instead of having a mouth <clears throat> is genius because it deals with probably the most complicated thing to animate on the human face in a really clever way um it, his design just can't be overseen he looks like a little a little rotund british soldier <laughs> is what he looks like and and it's it's a very effective design but uh, i guess it's worth noting that uh, inside the costume, it is, it is Deep Roy, um, who would have had, uh, he had a small role as the snail rider in Neverending Story this year, uh, the year this came out, um, and was, in general, a, a fairly well-known performer throughout the 1980s and 90s in, in doing these kinds of roles where he's inside of a suit or a, you know, a mechanical contraption. But uh, yeah, TikTok is, is a fantastic character, and... Honestly, as terrifying as everything has been up until this point in the film, once TikTok is introduced, I always sort of felt like Dorothy was safe. And I, I think that's why he exists in the story, is to provide that constant source of protection. And the only other times where I feel like Dorothy is not safe are the ones where TikTok is incapacitated. Yeah. Um, and that's that's just really cool that they do so much to build that character so quickly and, and so to help you understand his position in the story. Um, but just an incredibly emotive and capable performance here. Like, this is this is Henson firing on every cylinder that they can fire on. And it's glorious. It's just glorious. I would say probably not until... I mean, Labyrinth is the year after this, and that, again, is, is the Henson company just killing it on every level. But this is really something else. And, uh, and I love it. This is great. So TikTok fins off the wheelers, and uh, very quickly we make it to Mombi's castle. And oh and, lord. Oh, <laughs> yeah. She's scary. This is, this is just yeah, so. horrifying. Um, the, the palace is beautiful. Absolutely breathtaking. And this is a lovely set. That, I guess that's why the review that that talked about Oz looking boring kind of hurt me. Because I was like, man, I just do this did not look boring. This was a beautiful movie. Um, the palace, it's its all in disrepair. You know, everything is sort of messed up. But then there's uh, this moment when they enter the throne room. And the throne room in the palace in Oz, uh, in the Emerald City, is incredible. It has walls of mirrors and polished gold everything. And it is still, you know, kept up, so it's not in disrepair. It's the only thing that isn't in disrepair. 
Um, right. This is the only place that Mombi cares about in Oz, and that is the place in which she inhabits. Um, I mean, we could we could spend a lot of time talking about this room because it tells us everything we need to know about Mombi in the space. Right? She's ostentatious. She's prideful. She's vain. Right? Because the whole thing is mirrors. Yeah. Right? She can see herself from every angle. Um, her costume and I mean, it's, it's meant to be you know, it's, it's a peacock costume. Right? It's, it's the you know, I am the most beautiful of all, right? She's in this immaculate cloak. She's playing a song to herself. It's it's evocative of all of these, you know, Renaissance-era paintings of, you know, a woman in repose, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and she's beautiful, right? She's not what we expect at all. She's young and she's beautiful. I forget the name of that actress, uh, that plays her initially. The, <laughs> there are the, a lot of actresses that play her in the end. <laughs> um, oh, it's uh, Sophie Ward is her name. But the reason I knew her was because she played uh, Sherlock's love interest in Young Sherlock Holmes, which is another one of my just favoriteest movies ever. <laughs> uh, I, I still routinely watch young Sherlock Holmes uh, I'm not ashamed to admit it I love that movie even though it's deeply flawed in so many ways uh, I don't care I think young Sherlock <laughs> Holmes is brilliant uh, but so she's wearing Sophie Ward's head and we go into a hall of heads and this is a super simple effect it's just women with their head through a, a pie plate with a black cloak yeah. on so you can't see them I mean, it's really effective, but I mean, it is terrifying because they're all moving. Their eyes are open. They're looking around. They're conscious. They're aware. And and she and she you. takes her head off, just straight she up. Just just takes it off. Just and then walks over headless you know, to another cabinet and takes out a new head. Holy that's shit! Right. And so she, she puts that head on for a while, and, and you know, it's, it's fine. Uh, they get uh, introduced formally, I suppose. I love it when she's holding the and head and she just goes, so what do you think? <laughs> yeah. Is this one all right? Um, but again, this is just the, the production design of this this film. It's so over the top and so crazy, but it... it it's great because it serves story function, right? We're not just being shown stuff to be shown stuff. We're learning about Mombi here. Because we're, we basically get the impression very quickly that there's only one way for her to accumulate heads, and that is by chopping it off somebody else and enchanting it so that she can have it. And she and quickly uh, decides that she might want to do that to Dorothy. That's right. Dorothy would be perfect for that. Which is the other component of this that I love. Um, which is that everybody knows who Dorothy is, right? She is famous in Oz. And I think that that is, is a really cool effect. It's something that I think like the Gregory and Maguire books do well too, that, you know, Dorothy becomes this infamous figure. Because, I mean, again, you, you've got to think of her original adventure in Oz and the havoc that she wreaks, right? I mean, she's 
murdering witches. She's restarting. Yeah, she literally falls out of the sky and just changes everything. (laughs) That's right. She falls out of the sky and just fucks shit up for a couple of days. And, you know, not that it didn't need to be, right? Uh, You know, things needed to be changed. But at the same time, she reeks. She is the tornado for Oz. Like, the tornado brings her to Oz, but she continues the path of the tornado through that world. And so, you know, people know her, they're aware of her and what she's done. And so Mombi, of course, realizes that uh, Dorothy Gale must be contained. She can't be allowed to just run around. So she's thrown into the top of the tower, which is tall enough that Dorothy can look out over, you know, the expanse of at least what's left of Oz. And of course, she looks across the Deadly Desert, sees the mountains, where of course we know the Gnome King lives. And, you know, it's here that, you know, Dorothy sort of starts to figure out what she needs to do, with at least Belina's help. So she finds paintings and artifacts of the palace before it was taken over by Mombi, including a portrait of the Scarecrow in his royal garb, because he has become the leader, right? That's what happens at the end of the original Wizard of Oz, and he's standing there with his council, including the Tin Man, and cowardly line so we know they're still in the world but uh, did we see statue versions of them i guess we did um the cowardly lion and the tin man but of course scarecrow we don't see the scarecrow we don't see right so we know that you know they were included in this this takeover uh of the palace but not scarecrow he says but that of course leads to the introduction of probably one of the most impressive puppeteering i mean in a film full of impressive examples of puppeteering genius uh we get jack Pumpkinhead, and i mean i know that tim burton is a very original person he was he was drawing you know jack skellington for a long time well and that was that was uh henry selick you know yeah very much so but uh man you know this is that it really is basically uh a sweater version of it at least not like, like so sweet stretch, this i don't know this character just i loved tiktok i really i did i love all the characters in this movie actually even the gump that yeah. we're gonna meet soon um yeah, gump's pretty good but jack was just so precious and like he asks if he can call dorothy mom and it's just so sweet mm-hmm. <laughs> um but yes his story is interesting uh that he was built by um ozma of oz and that is his mother and he, he confuses her and dorothy at first um but it a really kind of a difficult character to to realize but it looks great and it looks believable yeah i mean today this this would just be a cg character yeah it would be group no questions asked yeah nobody would ever would ever consider trying to make this thing for real but my god the amount of puppeteering that goes into making this thing move because it's obviously there is a person in a suit number one that is the trunk and base of jack but then he extends another like four feet tall and then his his pumpkin head is puppeted 
his arms and hands are are manipulated like it is it is an incredible machine um you know again tiktok is very impressive but he's contained right he's kind of like rtd2 yeah. you know there's a little bit of work there but it's it's a, a tin can that there's somebody inside and then they've got some radio controlled manipulation jack is on another level because he is he's he's not human enough to sort of make it obvious how he's being puppeted right in a few of the scenes he's definitely just a guy in sort of an extended suit but in many of the scenes it is this incredibly elaborate puppet and and just impressive all the time like it, it looks really cool um also kind of scary yeah. as hell you have to love halloween <laughs> and halloween aesthetic in order to love jack pumpkinhead <laughs> you kind of do uh it's and boy, that was my little girl Dorothy, aesthetic. Halloween. <laughs> yeah, Dor- Dorothy loves him. So you, she's certainly working to, you know, Dorothy's helping, you know, anybody who would be troubled by his appearance to like him. And and he's so genuine and so kind and so sweet that it's hard to not, like, look past those things. And one thing that also must be stated about this film is this film leans heavily into the aesthetic of the original artist on the wizard of oz series um the the original film you know while it certainly took inspiration from those drawings um it it, you know took license right it it turned it they came up with their own um their own versions of these characters right and and they kind of had their own stamp on them and and as a result sort of changed the way that a lot of people interpreted those characters and saw them but the original drawings for the wizard of oz were much more oh yeah like the lion was actually a lion much more broad (laughs) right and so it's it's really kind of cool uh his name was Denslow. William Wallace Denslow. That's right. And and Denslow's style is, is evident here, especially the scarecrow. Um, the, the scarecrow in the original was a legitimate, like, stuffed bag scarecrow, right? Like, grab the potato sack, stuff it full of straw, hang it up. Uh, as opposed to, you know, just the male face of the original. And so this movie leans back into those aesthetics, which I think is great. Um, it, it really does keep things more cartoonish, more childlike in a lot of ways, which uh, is to this film's benefit. If this didn't have the kind of cute and cartoonish characters, it would have been so much more terrifying. I don't know if I could have handled it. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, we live in a world now where we've had so many Wizard of Oz adaptations um, you know, I don't know if you remember the Sci-Fi Channel original. I Man, do, sadly. Um, with Zoe Deschanel as Dorothy Gale. Uh, you know, it it attempted to make things more realistic, I suppose you could say, um, and and was not altogether unsuccessful. It certainly wasn't successful, but it, it had moments of interest. Um, Neil McDonough is, is always fun to watch, and, and he sort of does a, an interesting take on the Tin Man as a character and a concept. 
Uh, and then we've had a couple of recent revivals. I think NBC did another like mini series where they tried to, to do stuff with Oz, and it's you know it's an open canvas. I don't want to be an Oz purist and say it must be this way, but if you really are looking to have a visual of the Oz kind of as Baum envisioned, this is probably as close as you're going to get. In terms, in terms of look, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I just, I, I really like the aesthetic of the film. And, and the Henson Company grabs it very, very well. Um, but really, the next step, you know, Dorothy needs to get out of here. And so she... She steals uh, zomb- uh, Mombi's... I couldn't call it zombies. <laughs> she steals Mombi's ruby key and while she's that's asleep. That's a horror scene. That's straight out of a horror movie, that entire scene. Because the key is mm-hmm. is tied around Mombi's wrist, and she sleeps without a head. Jesus course, I mean, H. very uncomfortable. I love how she's still snoring. Oh. <laughs> what is she that's snoring really from? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Something. Um... But she goes and she opens uh, one of the cabinets that's kind of hidden and uh, what finds what we presume is Mombi's original head, which has been hidden away because it's not, I guess, beautiful. It's enough. the oldest head. And of course it is. It's the oldest head. And of course it's the nurse, right? It's Jean Marsh's head. So she has uh, a bunch of accoutrement in there, including the what was powder of life, right, to extend life and a bunch of other stuff uh a lot of it looks like things that the wizard would have brought with him yeah right like it's a lot of it looks very much like snake oil salesman branding that kind of thing so i think we're supposed to believe that uh you know some of his quote-unquote magic has hung around the world even though he's been gone for quite some time but so she steals uh the ruby key and what else what does she need um I guess it, it's the she life needs the powder of life because that's so she, she finds out from from Jack that that's what brought him to life. So she knows that Mombi has it, um, and she steals it, and in the process knocks over something and awakens the heads, and they begin yes, screaming. Oh, holy screaming God! This movie yeah. really is terrifying. <laughs> It's like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's that moment, right? They all start squealing at her. and uh, Then the headless Mombi gets up and starts chasing her. Wow. This happened in a children's movie. Yeah, then she, she breaks out the old head and puts on, and, and that's Mombi for the rest of the film. But, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's straight up a horror scene. Like, it is absolutely terrifying it's shot to be terrifying it's dark it's it's you know it's it's messed up uh but highly effective at establishing mombi as a truly terrifying force so she keeps screaming her name she bursts into the room lit from behind you know screaming at the top of her lungs Dorothy Gale. oh god <laughs> yeah, so scary so creepy <laughs> But so fortunately, Dorothy has been able to bring the gump to life, which is just an assemble, uh, an assembly of furniture with a moose head on the front of it or some kind of head on the front of it. And uh, they use it to fly. Right? So they're able to escape Mombi's. And it's nice because uh, you see castle. Dorothy's ingenuity. I mean, 
a lot of what happens to her in, you know, the MGM classic was sort of accidental. You know, her house fell on the witch and then she got wrapped up yeah, in all of this just... stuff. But in this, we actually see Dorothy like actively problem solving and trying to help Oz instead of just being thrown into things. Yeah, she's she makes choices in this one, uh, as opposed to just being pulled along, you know, by a, a leash. And, uh, and that certainly is more satisfying because Dorothy is, is actually given things to do, right? And, and tasks to accomplish. But so as they, they escape, they realize that, you know, they just kind of fly and Dorothy gets a chance to rest a little bit. Of course, there's some complications. Uh, Jack's head falls out at one point and they have to kind of find it. You know, there's a lot of like fun gags, but they realize they're being followed by the wheelers. And, and, you know, we, it's, it's a chase scene, right? You know, the threat isn't gone, but they're safe for the moment, or at least for the time being. Um, but unfortunately, the gump is not especially well put together, right? The, the lashings holding him together are loosening under the strain, and uh, they begin to fall out of the sky. So this... And where do they land? The yeah, desert, they, right? they land... Um... They go back across the deadly desert, and it's the same same section of desert that Dorothy lands in in the beginning of the movie. Um, and then they land in the Dominion of the Gnome King, which is mostly mountains, and snowy regions, and stuff just gets weirder. I feel like the movie takes an even weirder turn. <laughs> it does. It does. Um... You know, one of the things that I think that movies like this, these these effed up family films that we're talking about, and this is the perfect ex example of it, or the perfect exemplary sort of film for this phenomenon, is that there was a time in family film where legitimate fear and threat was considered necessary because unless the stakes feel real, unless the threat is significant, then when the child, right, the, the analog for the child watching overcomes it, if there was nothing to truly ever be afraid of, then what's the point? So, you know, this is where people like Neil Gaiman, who very much still writes stories for children that are frightening and have frightening moments. Um, you know, in, in Coraline, he said that being brave doesn't mean you aren't scared. Being brave means you are scared, really scared, and you do the right thing anyway. And it seems like in the 1980s, as with family films, like that principle was still made, could still make it yeah. through. And I think in a lot of ways, that's one of the reasons why Family Fair today, while certainly more palatable, is often less satisfying. Yeah is because there's there's you, the accomplishment of overcoming the danger never really feels that significant because the danger wasn't really that bad anyway. And and that's an important thing to remember, right? Like these movies are terrifying, but that terrifying component is what makes their eventual success over it all the more poignant and powerful. So here that's what we see right so mombi is terrifying <clears throat> and of course the gnome king is also terrifying um 
and there are threats. Right? TikTok has has been banged up a little bit, and of course, you know, Jack loses his head for a while. The gump lost his wings. They lose <clears> Belina. So there's, Belina there's, is missing. Uh, that's right. Yeah, of course we're. It's eventually revealed where Belina is. That she's <laughs> taken up residence inside of uh, Jack's head, which again beautiful idea take the hollowed out head of a jack-o-lantern and stick a chicken inside makes sense but i guess it's it's here that we find out that the gnome king has the slurps right like that's where they went they fell off when dorothy was traveling back home in the deadly desert and he collected them and so for dorothy to get back home this time she's going to have to go and confront the gnome king and get back the slippers because how else is she going to get back to Kansas? But it's an extraordinarily Um, complicated way that she has to go about this because the Gnome King feels like he has some ownership over the lands and the ruby slippers. Um, Mm -hmm. It's it's a very it's not a it's not as cut and dried as other villain motivations like the Wicked Witch was just the Wicked Witch. And she was just bad. But the, the Gnome King is not just bad. He is bad. I mean, he's, he's the bad guy, but it's not all there is. Yeah, yeah I think the idea here is more that... It, it's, again, that concept that Dorothy was in really over her head. And she didn't realize it before. Um, that she was messing with forces and powers and magics that you know she didn't understand she didn't have any concept of and now the Nob king is trying to educate her as to how this world actually works and so as you know the gnome king here is is a bit of a, a pluto style figure a bit of a hades right he's in the ground he owns the ground so anything that comes out of him he feels is his just like the gems that would be made to make something like ruby slippers um again we get a bunch of fantastic facial animation in this sequence um the gnome king is is fully uh, um fully animated uh claymation you know really really but slowly cool, becomes more uh, sort of human until they actually have uh have the actor in makeup which i think is really cool mm-hmm. yeah he's sort of um carves himself out of the rock, right? He's in the rock at the beginning of their interaction, but then he sort of becomes more and more human, and then Nicole Williamson, uh, you know, eventually sort of just is in rock makeup and uh, is able to, to act a little bit more. But, you know, Dorothy here, it's, is it, this is her low moment in the film, I guess, as she realizes, you know, I'm, I'm so close, but it, I'm being blamed for things. It's not my fault. You know, I, I didn't know that the slippers were yours. I didn't steal them. That's not what I wanted to do. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, he talks a little bit about, um, the scarecrow and the reason why the scarecrow was punished because he stole the emeralds for the emerald city. Which, uh, you know, Dorothy tries to explain that that wasn't him. You know, he didn't do that. That was the wizard. You know, what have you. And so there really is, like, a a back and forth here. The villain is not, as you said, just the villain, right? He is most definitely a... Um, he's a guy who has beef, right? And his beef is not illegitimate. He has a point. But it's 
misunderstandings, right, to an extent. So the the Wheelers gave up when they went through uh, the desert. Obviously, they couldn't follow, or uh, yeah. <laughs> they they were supposed to, but they didn't want to. So they go back to Mobby. Mobby is infuriated because the Gnome King has Dorothy, and that's bad for her, I suppose. But we really this the scene of them conversing about the situation goes on for quite a while. We get decent exposition in here. We kind of find out some of the stuff that was happening. And and the the basics of the plan. Do you want to go to like what is the Gnome King? Want? I'll let you explain because I think you know better. Well which part? Like what he wants with with Dorothy or uh, I'll let you lay it out. Whatever, whatever you want to talk about. What is the Gnome King down to? Um, well, it seems like he wants to. I mean, he ex he wants to exercise ownership over Oz, but not necessarily like the Emerald City or the King, because he gives all of that to Mombi. It doesn't seem like he wants any of that. Um. But he takes <laughs> Dorothy and all of her friends, and it seems like he wants to own everything and have everything. And I got, when I was a kid, and I don't know if this is intentional, but he starts off as this kind of visage in the rock, and he is just a rock face until the moment when he starts taking Dorothy's friends and turning them into objects. He has some kind of transmogrifying power. Um, and he decides that he's going to use his powers of transmogrification to essentially play a game with Dorothy. Um, but his purpose... I mean, what is his purpose? Why does... I'm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um... He's a trickster figure, yeah. so he's he's absolutely sort of using his abilities to, to sort of keep Dorothy at bay. But the, the prize is the ruby slippers. He knows that's what Dorothy wants, and, and he is wearing Yeah, he them. has them. Right? Again, as, as it transitions into Nicole Williamson, we, we actually see him with the ruby slippers on. But yeah, he gives her a kind of test, right? And it's sort of the grail test from... The a little bit. Indiana Jones and the... Last Crusade, uh, basically it's a room full of beautiful things, and she has to pick out her friends from the beautiful things. She has to be able to recognize them in this room, just through sort of her understanding of who her friends are. And so I like this scene because, in essence, what it proves is that Dorothy Gale truly understands people here. That she knows who they are and what they mean, and... And that they are very real to her. Yeah, they're fully formed in her mind, right? And she knows, even if they get changed into some sort of, you know, object, she knows enough about them to be able to pull them out of that and and say, this is who you are, right? And and so that's the, the deal that's been struck, is that if she can... If she can find... It uh, seems like the Gnome King wants to prove that everybody. she doesn't belong. To an extent, the, yeah. And, and he also could possess her if if that's the case, right? That he, he gets to own yeah. her too, if she can't prove it. 
you know, we get a, a really sweet scene. Uh, TikTok is the only one that went into the room and he didn't turn into something because he's, his mechanical works ran down and he's just left standing in the room. But this then becomes the basis of the plan because she's going to watch him transform and then hopefully use that to, you know, figure out the, the mechanics of the situation to solidify you know, sort of and, how this works so that she can find And it's such an interesting approach. It's so logical and it's so well thought out and it has zero application in the Land of Oz. Like, no logic applies here. <laughs> right, yes. Again, the, the sort of absurdist nature of you know, Elbaum's world, or Frank Elbaum's world, sort of comes raging in here, right? Um, but it's a beautiful test, and it's shot really The well. room full of um, objects is gorgeous. Yes, I mean, again, just fantastic production design. Um, we do find out that, uh, I guess, Mombi has a sort of tunnel to the Gnome King's world, so they can stay in contact. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, she's kind of on the... I guess they're on the outs with each other. They don't really like each other. And, uh, you know, that in and of itself is, is kind of interesting that there's a power struggle within a power struggle in Oz. And the Gnome King has sort of established himself as being in charge of most things, but mommy has been given a little shred of power for herself. Um, but so as, as Dorothy continues on with the test, she approaches and sort of, you know, she and the Gnome King have a little detente and their back and forth is really interesting just in the time she's waiting for her turn to play the game um just their conversation is interesting yeah it's it's very tense and and there are moments where um where you know the gnome king like reveals his true nature Right. He get, becomes enraged. And then I guess we, we sort of figure out the real cause of all this, is that if he can convert all of Dorothy's friends, including Dorothy, into a uh, into these, these objects, then he'll he'll be able to become a yeah. human. Which is, is his yeah, own. We see that slowly happening. And presumably it would mean right, that he could leave the mountain. Yes, he wouldn't be trapped. That's what I always assumed as a kid. I mean, we're going off kid logic where I'm just like, well, I mean, I guess if he was a mountain, he couldn't leave. <laughs> right. And so they, they figure out that the common denominator between all of the, the characters is green. Anything in the room that's green is one of Dorothy's friends. And so the first person she finds is the Scarecrow. And then we sort of see the Gnome King roll back through his forms, getting closer and closer to his initial rock form. And so it's it's cool. Again, we get to see Dorothy being ingenious and intelligent and figuring things out. Um, there's a little bit of, you know, she's like walking around just grabbing things with her hands, you know, almost like a divining rod for a little bit. But uh, we sort of watch both Mombi and the Gnome King, you know, kind of their relationship kind of disintegrate as everything goes the wrong way. The, uh... <laughs> and so, needless to say, uh, 
Dorothy is able to to restore all of her friends, of course. This is a children's movie. It's, it's not going to be that bad. But then we get mm, the, the final confrontation, uh, which is, of course, the Gnome King. Uh, in, he's fully animated here, right? Again, some really nice claymation work going on. And uh, he's, you know, sort of this mountainous figure. He's got all of his other little minions that are trapping them and keeping them in place. And uh, ultimately, he seems to want to eat them, I guess. That's the goal here. Uh, we see him eat the Gump's couch, just sort of sticking in his mouth, which is kind of gross. It's, re- it's really horrific. Like, he's wreathed in flame, yeah. and he has this, you know, big gaping mouth and like his eyes are so disgusting this is really scary um it's it's wonderful animation just in general uh at one point he grabs jack Pumpkinhead. um dorothy's managed to recover the scarecrow um and she's finding yes. her friends which is what frustrates the, the gnome king to the point that he attacks them um right but it's it's really horrifying, but he picks up Jack Pumpkinhead and is going to eat him. And that's, I mean, Jack has been so sweet and so innocent. That's kind of the moment that you crack a little bit. Cause it's like, no, please don't eat Jack. And then we get, yeah, Jack is, we get our, our big moment that we have discovered where Belina is, but now it's going to count where Belina is. Yes, um, just as, as we had seen at the beginning, the, the Gnome King and, and his, his rock friends were terrified of the presence of a chicken, um, which I guess there aren't chickens in Oz, or if there had been, there hadn't been any for a long time. And Belina, who is hiding in Jack's head, finally, finally lays an egg and and that eggs are poison poison right (laughs) which again this is an interesting inversion right that to a farm of this time period i suppose you know something like an egg is essential right to daily existence you need it to survive that's your your protein it's necessary but here in oz the chicken's egg is poison it's deadly to the gnome king and his his people um what do you think about that from a symbolic standpoint what what is baum doing with that do you think? well i mean eggs have their obvious symbolism um i'm not i mean without reading the book i I don't know if I could really be sure because I haven't, I haven't read this, this particular book. So mm. I don't know in this case. I mean, it's, it's life and it's continuation and it's, it essentially represents like the future of Oz. Um, and the gnome King is, you know, directly in opposition to the future of Oz because he wants it to be the future for him and for no one else. So the egg, the the symbol for all potential is what does him in, I guess. It certainly seems so. Like I said, I, I'm I've always been fascinated by, you know, the chicken and the egg. 
it feels a bit like an in-joke, maybe. Like Baum saying, you know, what came first, the chicken and the egg, and sort of playing with that idea a little bit. But it, it certainly has, like, a... There's a life quality here, like you said. Um, and with the the animation is the gnome king horrifying, dies, also horrifying. Really because he like he like you know sort of erodes away into sort of a skull shape and then just collapses and then there's an explosion or something. But of course Dorothy um, regains the ruby slippers, uses them to escape, and of course everyone is fine. But in escaping, she also undoes everything the gnome king had done, and so the Emerald City is restored. And the the people of the Emerald City are restored, including, and we we are finally clearly shown where Mombi got her heads <laughs> from. There's like a the headless dancers. Girls. They're all headless, and and that's where Mombi's got the heads from. And so all of the heads are back, and they finish their dance. And you know, it's it's a classic sort of happy ending. Everybody's fine. The world is restored. Dorothy is welcomed as a this uh, you this know, part is maybe the most the palace, George Lucasy you know, of all of them. The little parade through Oz. It really felt like the end yeah. of a Star Wars. <laughs> yes, this is this is the uh, the the metal offering <laughs> sequence. But there's also a lot of callbacks to. You know, the original oh, yeah. film uh, here as well. You know, the costume design and everything. Um, there is definitely a golden robot bouncing up and down with joy, like a certain Star mm-hmm. War that we could probably mention. Um, but we really get a, another sort of scene similar to the original, where Dorothy now has to make the decision to depart Oz. You know, she realizes that she can't stay. And this is the... I don't know if if this works as well as the original. In the original, the theme is so clear that Dorothy just needs to get home. That's where she belongs. But in this one, she's truly... Yeah, they want her to stay and be the queen. And she wants to stay. Like, and, and that's where the wish comes from this time. Instead of, there's no place like home, she says, I wish I could be in both places at once. That I could do both. And that I could have a piece of myself here and a piece of myself there. And so here's where the film takes a... I don't remember this from the Bound books at all. There, in the Bound books, there is a... There is a connection between Ozma and Dorothy. Yes. But in this one, they just sort of lean super hard into it and almost make it seem like Ozma is a piece of Dorothy or she's, she's tied to Dorothy in some way. And so uh, she appears in one of the mirrors, in the Hall of Mirror, and uh, in the Hall of Mirrors, and then you know, she is able to sort of pull Ozma back through. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. I don't think it's... I don't think the mechanics of it are super clear. Not that they have to be, but as far as like what happens, uh, I don't. I. I I don't know if it's. Uh, we do get a bit of an exposition dump, right? One of the the heads. Uh, one of the Mombi heads, or a couple of them, actually sort of lay it out for us that Ozma was the, the true ruler or potential ruler of Oz. 
and that her father was the king of Oz before the wizard showed up, and you know that everything got uh, and that uh, everything got screwed up by the wizard. So again, the wizard just sort of jacked everything up like nobody's business, and now they're finally putting things right. And Ozma's going to sit on the throne, and she's going to be the good ruler of Oz when Dorothy can't be there. But Dorothy is always welcome to return. Um, so I guess Ozma gets the ruby slippers, right? Like, that's the thing. It's like, instead of Dorothy wearing them as she leaves, she leaves them with Ozma for safekeeping, and now it will just be Ozma who, you know, makes the wishes. But, you know, basically now Dorothy has, like, an open invitation to return anytime she wants, right? Um, so, I mean, I, I think this... They're setting up potential sequels here, which... You know, there's plenty more books to adapt. They're only adapting two and three here, so there's certainly room to run it out, you know. But once again, Dorothy gets ripped away before she's before she's ready, right? Which I always found interesting. That she never really has a moment to contemplate. Everything just keeps pushing and pushing and pushing, and that happens again. Which reinforces the sort of fantastic component, right? Like waking from a dream. Like you're going to wake whether yeah. you want to or not. And, and that is just kind of cool, I suppose. Um, but we get a really nice transition from, you know, the, the sort of jeweled emeralds of Ozma's headdress to, you know, the, the running water of the stream that Dorothy has fallen asleep next to after the storm. Uh, because that is where she awakens, right? The last time we saw her, she was jumping into a flooded river and uh, drifting downstream while the nurse looked on horrified. And she wakes up on the edge of that river and who finds her, of course? Toto. Toto. Her faithful pup pup, who has found her after her uh, long night out alone in the elements. Uh, and I gotta say, in this one, Toto is, uh, mm, man, he's, uh -huh. he's a cute dog in this one. Toto. Um, so... One of the things I like about this scene, and I don't know how well the film earns it, but at the beginning, the relationship between Dorothy and Auntie M and her uncle is, is so strained and so reserved. But after this experience and almost losing Dorothy, like you sort of see the real joy come out in the relationship, right? You, you finally see them sort of remember that this is a little girl that they love. Yeah which is sort of terrible to think that she would have to be reminded, but it certainly... Well, you know, she's that. not their daughter. You know, this is a this is a different right. kind of, of family that feels like it was cobbled together, maybe because of circumstance. Yeah, I guess that's the other component that often gets forgotten about. That often gets forgotten about uh, Dorothy is that she's an orphan. You know, she is um, another byproduct of, of westward expansion, right? And uh, Baum never specifically gives reason why Dorothy is in that state, but uh, you know, there are a lot of potential reasons that would have you know, sort of played into that. Um, but yeah, it's it's just nice to see their relationship kind of reformed after this, and they're they're less concerned about whether or not Dorothy is a useful component of their daily life and, and instead just joyful 
at her being a child and being in their lives, which, again, it's an important thing for people to remember. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that uh, kids get to just be kids. They don't have to have utilitarian purpose in order to be valuable. And uh, it seems like maybe this turn-of-the-century family got a little reminder of that, which is good. But uh, then we get a bunch of rapid updates. We see the nurse being carted away. We find out that the doctor died. Uh, the clinic was actually struck by lightning, which set it on fire. And the doctor died running back in to get his machines. Right, so he was, his machines were so precious that he attempted to rescue them rather... I'm going to go ahead and assume rather than the patients. Yeah. Well, I mean, the machines probably were uh, really expensive. <laughs> Very. Because there's there's some unstated stuff here, which again I think is probably to avoid the film getting too dark. But one of the last shots of that sequence before we head back to the Kansas farm is the nurse being carted away in like a prison yeah. wagon. And the only reason I can think why they would be going to prison is because the clinic was set on fire and a bunch of people died. Yeah. That would be my guess. And so the doctor died trying to save his machines and then a bunch of patients died because the nurse wasn't there to rescue them. And I, I don't know. Again, the film does not put down a particular stamp on any of that. But it certainly seems to indicate that bad things happened. And that Dorothy, even though her escape was very dangerous and she probably shouldn't have done it, it was probably the better outcome because if she had stayed, she would probably be dead too. So, uh, again, kind of dark. Kind of rough in terms of uh, thematic content, if you want to call it that. Um, But, again, the, the principle here is that if the danger is real, if the threat is real, then the success at overcoming it is even more powerful. And I, I sort of see the that working here. Definitely working better than it did in, in last week's film with Little Monsters. Because the threat in that one, while disgusting and violent, it's so out of left field with the rest of the movie that it, it, it doesn't really have an impact beyond that's really creepy. Whereas with this one, I think it lingers more. Uh, and there's a lot more time to deal with it. Because uh, this is a pretty simple movie. Like, it's, it's complex complex in its execution but the story itself is fairly straightforward um you know it could be basically summed up as dorothy goes to oz and messes shit up again um but this time <laughs> <from there. laughs> um, but so the the end of the film is is quite uplifting dorothy awakens uh to another kansas morning uh uncle henry is you know, putting the finishing touches on the house which is now much nicer on the inside and everybody's a lot more space and, uh, it looks much more homey and, and you know. Dorothy has her own bedroom. She, right. She's got a bedroom all to herself and it's not cramped and she's got plenty of space. And she walks over to the mirror and who's she see but Ozma and Lolina. And, you know, the implication here is that now Dorothy, through the through Ozma's power and, and her possession of the ruby slippers, that she has a connection to Oz anytime she wants, right? She wanted to be in both places at the same time. That's not possible, necessarily. But she can... The implication here is that she can kind of go back when she wants. Right? 
she can choose to engage in the fantasy now, which I think is a really mature stance to put on it, right? That before she's been pulled into this fantasy world, she's been drawn into it, whether she wants to or not. But now she has some measure of control on when she engages and when she, uh, um, you know, sort of goes to Oz. But it's, it's interesting that she still doesn't feel comfortable sharing that idea with her aunt. Right, she hides it, right? Because aunt calls for her and she kind of flips the mirror up so she can't see Ozma, but when she turns it back, she's gone. Um, and I think that's... It's designed... It's Well, maybe not designed, but it's meant to be yeah. helpful. Right? It's meant to be a positive. And, and it is, for the most part, but it's... Uh, it's bittersweet. It, it is, right? And uh, again, it's, it's a more sort of middle of the road somewhat ambiguous you know this isn't the full everything's going to be fine ending but there's certainly openings here for happiness for dorothy um again there may have been sequel plans uh, you know, i certainly couldn't find anything about that in my research specifically and obviously this film didn't do well enough to warrant any additional films of this ilk but you know the film is certainly open to dorothy continuing to have adventures in oz um, there are a couple of books in the series that focus on Ozma mm-hmm. specifically, um, and and just her, you know, goings and doings in Oz. So it it's, it's sort of becomes a dual narrative in some ways, and maybe the film was leaning into that at some point. But you know, the final shot as as credits roll is really just Dorothy sort of running out into the yard and being a kid, right? Uh, not bearing the weight of the world on her shoulders as she did before. Right, she's able to, to sort of embrace that youth, and uh, and it's it's a you know, it's a nice ending. It's not bad. What are your thoughts? Anything unsatisfying? About um, it? it's it, it it's an ending that's always kind of worked for me. Um, I don't like the the Wayne's World you know mega happy ending um, most of the time. I mean that's that's one thing that I always found sort of cloyingly upsetting about children's movies. Um, with, you know, some exceptions and a lot of them being Disney exceptions. I think Disney can do happy endings really well. Um, Mm -hmm. but that being said, I like that it was hopeful. I love that she keeps Oz a secret because, you know, I, I mentioned before about being imaginative and the problem of feeling like no one believes you and being told that you shouldn't believe in imaginary things. That felt very serious to me as a kid, that it was like the decision to leave adults out of that fantasy world because you know they don't understand. That's a very, that's a very big crossroads for a a little kid to come to. Um, You know, do I continue to talk about my imagination or do I just keep it to myself? Um, so I, I kind of love the ending for that. And it felt more hopeful to me because that was something that I had to deal with as a kid. Yeah. Um, so really, that's that, that wraps the film, I suppose. It's, it's a, again, a satisfying ending. I think it, it leans into fantasy, the embracing of the imaginative, as you said, and encouraging... encouraging kids to be kids right um which i I think is a a 
pretty important lesson. It's it's easy to um, fall into the trap of seeing kids as little adults and you know give them jobs and, and <laughs> send them on their way. Um, but sometimes you know you, you need to let them breathe and, and be children. And and it feels like finally perhaps that's what's going to be able to happen for Dorothy because it's been a while since she's been given that opportunity. And and so it's it's a happy ending. It's it's a happy ending to a melancholy film and an ending that's happy because it's it's almost like a return to normalcy for Dorothy, right? She can finally sort of begin living her life again. And uh, that in and of itself is, is really exciting. But, all right, uh, so I guess we can move into our one thing. So as we said, this is a film that we both like a lot, but it did not find initial success. And really, I would say not until recently, in the last 15 years or so, have people begun to look at this film positively. It wasn't available for a long time. Uh, it was a hard film to run down. VHS wasn't too bad to find, but DVD releases were pretty slim. And uh, obviously before the advent of streaming services, it was not really easy to get your hands on. But um, So what do you think? What could have been changed to make this more palatable for that elusive modern audience? What could have made this into, instead of a cult classic family film, just a classic I've been going back and forth on that. I I know in my heart that if they had made it less horrifying and less dark, it probably would have done better. However, I don't want that to change because that's kind of my favorite thing about the movie. I love that it's dark. I love that it's scary. Um, the scary moments from this movie are, are ones that stuck with me. I mean... And, and in a good way, you know, I think back like, oh, you know, I loved that when I was a kid. Um, however, I know that as a Disney film, I think people were expecting more Disney. And as a Wizard of Oz film, people were expecting more MGM. And I think had they delivered on either one or both of those, this would have been a more successful film. And that means, you know, lightening characters like the Wheelers. Um, lightening some of the costume choices, some of the some of the things like lighting choices, just making things look very stark and scary. Um, but again, I, I feel like if you did that, you would be losing some of that Henson magic. Um, because I, I can't really think of a time that that Henson productions, outside of like Muppets, have not had darkness and grit to them because that's just something about the puppeteering that they did especially in the 80s is it it had that look and it had that feel so i think that's about the only thing that you could do because the script is good the performances are good everything about the film is good but the tone i think killed it i would agree um it's obvious that Merch felt a, a realistic approach to telling a fantastical story would create a sort of fascinating juxtaposition, right? Like, I, I really think that that was part of the fascination of telling the story this way, because it's, it's not told with a sense of wonder. 
right? The, the cinematography is not wondrous. The approach to it is not wondrous. It's, it's really just reliant upon a, a little girl who has a pretty strong streak of optimism sort of thrown into terrible situations and, and figuring a way out of them, which is a good adventure story. That's the pinnacle of an adventure story. But that is not what, as you said, people associate yeah. with Oz. Right? That is not it. Um, honestly, I think what could have fixed this, but it would have had, to, it would have had to have been handled very, very specifically. I think three songs could have been enough, because unfortunately, The Wizard of Oz is identified yeah. now as musical. Like you cannot get away from that. People are going to expect well, it's, that with something associated with Wizard of Oz, even though the original is not that at all. Although it was adapted into a stage musical very quickly, like that's that's where the success for Wizard of Oz came from. Was from when it's one of those things that it is um, the MGM film has overwritten our our interpretation of Oz. Like you and I don't have right. A legitimate understanding of the Wizard of Oz, and we never will, because our context was immediately informed by that film, and it always will be. Um, that's you know when I, I brought up simulacra and simulation before, you know the the layers of reality. You know, there's a lot of stupid grad school theory stuff you can talk about, but in general, when it comes to these you know these staples of media they get referenced over and over and over again and you you are saturated <laughs> by this pop culture item to the point where you can't disassociate you can't dissociate it anymore it's impossible right and and to walk away from that so powerfully i think is is one of the things people react to takes balls though um it does, and, and I appreciate it. And I, I don't think this is a movie that necessarily would... You would have... The, more things about the movie would need to change to support the idea that I'm, I'm going to throw out here. But here's my idea. Number one, we need a song when Dorothy arrives at the asylum and she's alone in her room. We need a song for her to sing as she's looking out the window, something melancholic, something sad... <clears throat> maybe an inverse of over the rainbow, like an under the rainbow kind of idea, because here she wants desperately to go back, but she doesn't know how. She feels disconnected. She feels lost. At the end of that song, as part of a, an ending duet, Ozma passes out of a mirror or something, and, and Dorothy feels a connection to Oz again for the first time. She's still got to go through the, the treatment and whatever, but this is singing that song connects her back to Oz for the first time. So we have a song there. Then we get a song when she comes back to Oz as she's traveling down the yellow brick road with Melina. Um, again, this would be shorter. She's, it, it's, it's more of a hectic sort of crazed, Oh my God, what's happened? What's happened? What am I going to do? Where are my friends? You know, and, and that song underscores, her movement through the Emerald City, the discovery of the statues leading up to the confrontation with the Wheelers, and the Wheelers come in. And with their sort of chorus laughing, their, their you know, strange gesture outfits, they could even sort of segue into the, the end of that song. 
then I think you know we get a little bit of a song with Mombi anyway. Right? She's playing music. She could easily be singing there something about herself, her you know how beautiful she is, you know something you know, along those lines. Maybe even hints at a relationship with the Gnome King that had gone sour, you know something like that. And then I think there needs to be a song from the Gnome King himself. I think he needs to introduce himself with song and um, you know, what's going on with him and, and the things that he wants, right? Which we get some very nice long exposition sequences with Nicole Williamson. Great, they're very good. But I think, a, you know, if if we're going to turn this into a musical that hangs a little bit more with the original, that's where I would put another song. Um, and then, of course, you know, something at the end uh, when Ozma appears, you know, some sort of you know, ballad that would, would tap things off. But I, I honestly think that the music in this movie is good Beautiful. already. You know, it's it's well done. It's it's well orchestrated. Obviously, talented people are working on it. I think I, I think those musical pieces would have made it more palatable, especially if they could write compelling lyrics. Again, are you going to get to somewhere over the rainbow? Probably not. I mean, it was the '80s. Songwriting was a very different beast than it was yeah. in the 1930s. But but I think you could have gotten there, right. You could have put a team on that, especially at Disney. Like Disney's had excellent songwriters hanging around forever right throw some of those people at it come up with a couple of tunes that are palatable something that people can, can hum and you're good but for me i think you know again i don't care to see this movie change significantly right uh i think the the, the second act as they're traveling to the gnome king's mountain is a little weak right there's just not much happening there um but everything else about the film pretty much works and and the terrifying components of it while very good at what they do i don't necessarily think need to be removed to make them more palatable i think you just need to balance them out with something else and and if anything that's what this film doesn't have right it's fine to be scary but if you're scary all the time (laughs) balance the scary right we need to balance the scary and characters like jack and tiktok do a lot to balance that out because they're so sort of steady and and lovely but this film needed more right because it's going to take a lot to offset the (laughs) like that is terrifying and you need to bring us back after something like that and and the film never really does it just keeps moving as you would expect a traditional film to do but this is a children's film ostensibly it's a family film you got to find that rhythm Right, so again, I hate to, you know, as we're talking about all these 80s family films, I I hate to keep talking about Spielberg, but again, he makes this look effortless. Right, so yes, we get the scene with Elliot being terrified by E.T. in the shed, but then that is offset almost immediately with funny shit with his family, right? Like, okay, come back, come back from the terror, right? Everything's okay, don't worry about it. And, And that is a hard balance to strike. In this movie, while I don't think it was interested in striking that balance, if you want to get that mainstream audience, that's the balance you have to strike. That's the one you've got to go for. Because people love being scared. Yeah. You scared. don't want to leave the theater scared. Right. Mm-mm. No. And, and this film is one that sort of rides that line very, very closely. And as a result, you know, obviously it didn't find purchase with people at the time. But as, again, it's gone on and people have seen it as kids and then watched it again after they've grown up, 
they they see what this film is trying to do and are generally satisfied by it. And for me, it stands alongside those mid nineteen eighties Henson projects, right? Labyrinth, a lot of the same yeah. issues, really. Labyrinth is scary as hell at times. Uh, honestly, the the headless puppet scene still. I used to have nightmares about the fire gang, and and one forward, of them one of them is is Danny John Jules, who's one of my my favorite comedic fellows. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, no, when they start taking their heads off, I'm out. I'm done. It is a bridge. It is a bridge too far. And uh, no thank you. Uh, you know, so Labyrinth is there. Dark Crystal is there. The Skeksis mm-hmm. are terrifying in the Dark Crystal. Um, and, and But I mean, look at the know, Labyrinth. I, you brought that up. What did that have that this movie didn't? Music. <laughs> it had David Bowie had singing. Music. It had David Bowie songs, you know, and, and that's that's it's a cushion, right? It's a balance, right? And it's also something that, that it gives you something to hang your hat on in the movie, right? No, I'm not saying that you know, Return to Oz needed. David Bowie I, I would have been fine Nobody with that. Just have Mombi played by David Bowie. That would have been great. Oh man, could you imagine? Like the pale <laughs> and all the heads, it would be like Mick Jagger's head in one of the things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll be just uh, all the bands. The old nasty head in the back is actually like Keith Richards or something. Right. <laughs> and over here and we then, have the birds. I, I don't wear the, their heads very We have the head of Prince over here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Which is for all of these rockers. <laughs> it's Elvis Presley. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think... As it stands, if you're willing to to go where this film wants to take you, I think there's really a lot to like here. And if you don't have an affinity for that original Wizard of Oz, right, where you really hold that in high esteem, like you like it, it's good, but it's not sacrosanct, then this film really does sort of give you a little bit more insight into that world that the first one never really did. Right, because it, it didn't take the time to world build in that way, um, not in the way that we think of world building now in terms of film. And to be frank, the, the world that uh, Baum created is is pretty incredible. It's weird, no doubt. It's very strange, but it is undoubtedly unique. Uh, it is a, an interesting vision of a fantasy land, and and worth investing some time in. Um, you know, another film we will probably talk about on here eventually is uh, Sam Raimi's take on Oz, which is Oz the Great and Powerful, um, which uh, focuses, of course, on the wizard, right? It has nothing to do with Dorothy Gale, but it is about the wizard's entrance into Oz and how he began to mess things up for them. Uh, it's uh, problematic. It's been a while since I've watched it. Um, I don't remember hating it. But I don't remember liking it very much either. Of course, it has Mila Kunis in it, and that in and of itself is a problem. I did not like that movie. Uh, yeah, my my opinion of James Franco has has altered a bit in the intervening years, so I'm wondering if that might have. A, a I do not like James Franco. <laughs> in my appreciation, <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, it's one that I, I want to. I, I want to watch again and then maybe potentially look at here because it too. Yeah, was it did horribly. Uh, big time. Sam Raimi, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing, Sam Raimi? Directing Doctor oh, Strange. God. That's what he's doing. He's coming back to the You can do it. Movies. We it's believe in you. Again. 
I've always believed in you, Sam Raimi. Drag, <laughs> drag me to hell. Uh, yeah, I was. Drag me to hell is great. But in any case, um, all right, so where would you fall in terms of your failure piece score? Is this a failure piece? Or it's piece this. This is this is a failure piece for me. Um, this is one of those movies. It's kind of like Dune. I I should have probably just been upfront that this is a hundred for me. Um, I grew up watching this movie. Like I said, I've never lived in a universe where this movie didn't exist, so I didn't have anything that was destroyed or torn down by this movie. You know, for me, the MGM film, the books, and Return to Oz have always existed together at the same time. And so I didn't have nearly the response that other people did. Um, because you know, I was also really small. So this is this is one of my favorite childhood films, and I can't say enough good things about it. I think everybody should see this, even if even if it doesn't sound like it would appeal to you. Um, if you, if you like the Wizard of Oz, if you're a fan of like that kind of musical and that kind of film, this is an interesting experience because it's someone's very fresh and very different take on a universe that we all like to think we know so real, so very well. And maybe we don't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I agree. I think that's, uh, You do have to kind of open your mind a little bit if you've got experience with Wizard of Oz from uh, other media. But if you can do that, there is a lot to love here. Um, I, I did want to mention, you know, we, we talked about the the animation of the the Gnome King and all the rock, you know, characters. All of that claymation, all of it, was done by Will Vinton um, of Will Vinton Studios, uh, who probably most famously did the California Raisins, uh, but a ton of other claymation projects, right? If you go look up Will Vinton, it's just got a laundry list. But more succinctly, Will Vinton Studios was the studio that was bought out by Phil Knight, owner of Nike, and given to his son, Travis Knight, which he then turned into Leica oh. Studios, which now makes... Coraline and Kubo and Box Trolls and Paranorman. Um, apparently, that takeover was not the cleanest thing in the world. Uh, Will Vinton doesn't have anything super negative to say about it, but it certainly seemed like because he hired Travis Knight as an animator there uh, right before they started work on Coraline, I want to say, and and then Travis Knight's very very wealthy dad just basically bought it because <laughs> um, Travis Knight uh, animator extraordinaire director of the Bumblebee film which is the best Transformers film again not saying mm. much but there it is um, his his previous experience to working in animation and film was uh, he was a rapper uh, who I believe was known as Iced T mm. pretty sure uh, but yeah anyhow just this is an interesting thing because I, I've always loved the animation, the claymation, the play animation in this film. It is exceptionally good. And Will Vinton does not get enough shout outs for being literally one of the best claymation animators ever. 
and and still responsible for basically now the only studio in the world still making movies that way, which is uh, apart from Aardman, who is also excellent, but on a different level. Um, but man, just so good. Anyway, sorry. So I wanted to say that. So my failure piece score is uh, is pretty high as well. Uh, not as high as yours. Uh, I don't love this <laughs> film with the same passion that you do, but I do enjoy it. Uh, so this is a this is an eighty six for me is what I've got written down because I I really do think that it is of you know these these messed up family films that we uh, are going to discuss and continue to discuss. This is the one that I think might be easiest for for modern viewers to latch onto. Right, Little yeah. Monsters is rough for me. Like I, it's a hard recommend for me. Uh, because it's such a problematic film that is miss it feels like it's missing some major pieces. That is not the case with this film. Like everything you need is here, and if you go on, as I said, if you go on the ride that this movie is offering, there's a lot to love. Right, the characters, obviously, the practical effects, the animation, the performances, everything's great. Like Merch is a very capable director, and uh, that shows. But it certainly is one that is going to ask you to to endure some things, right? It's a tough movie to get through. Uh, it can be extremely scary, but if you can, there's a lot to love, and uh, it's it's definitely it's trapped in that mid 1980s you know mindset for me. Like this feels like a film that only yeah. could have existed then. Like I don't think this movie could be made even today. Uh, not as an issue of standards, but I don't think just anyone would take this approach. To <laughs> no one would this. try this. <laughs> um, no, no. I mean, it, I, I would love to see somebody try to do a legitimate Oz adaptation again. Um, but again, the original is so iconic now that if you try and readapt that story, people just seem to almost reject it yeah. out of hand. Uh, somehow Wicked made it through. Right, people were okay I th with that I one. Think, uh, probably because of the yeah. perspective switch. And know, it did a lot of, it, of referential stuff. Um, you know, it, it kept some of the look and feel from the MGM movie just all mm -hmm. throughout. I mean, you know, True. Gregory Maguire's a real a real pop culture sensitive author. I mean, he's also a very literature sen sensitive author but pop culture is not lost on him like there's a reason he picked wizard of oz um oh, yeah. and then of course the musical adapted even more from the mgm film for its portrayal especially of of you know the witch um but yeah no i i i agree i agree so in any case, uh, regardless, this is a recommend from both of us. Uh, it is a, a truly, truly cult classic entry in in this you know, sort of weird family film space. And I'm glad that it's found an audience and that people have discovered it because I remember, you know, I enjoyed it as a kid. I loved it, uh, especially TikTok and Jack. Those were my, my two sort of big favorites in this film but i think that it's it's just got a lot to love if you can get through some of that some of that terror right some of those moments of horrific um, uh, danger that get sort of thrown at you that feel very legitimate but if you can it's it's pretty awesome definitely a good time 
All right, so any final thoughts? I love this movie. <laughs> mm. I'm probably yeah, going to watch it again. <laughs> Excellent. As it should be. But, all right, well, where can you be found on social media? I can be found at Baskinator on Twitter. Very nice. I can be found at T Baskin. Or, of course, you can get us at FPS Theater, or you can email us at failurepeace at gmail.com. All right, well, great discussion on the Return to Oz, a unique film in the director's um, uh, sort of Walter Murch's career. Uh, he didn't direct a ton of films, but this is certainly one of them. Um, a lot of interesting interactions with film uh, history with George Lucas being involved and obviously the, the absolute terror that was the mid-1980s at Disney. But uh, a, a cool, cool film to come out of a very, very strange and strained time in uh, film history. So uh, check it out if you get a chance. We certainly do recommend it. All right. We see you next week for another discussion of failure pieces and whether or not a film can truly rise to the level of being a failure piece or a piece of something else. We'll see you next time. Bye bye.